0: Binge Mode Star Wars. It's presented by State Farm.
1: Oh! You know those days when it feels like problems just pop right out of nowhere? The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a
0: thief. Breaking into your home and making off with your new flat screen TV like a
1: scavenger. That'll be three quarter portions of instant bread. That's it. For the TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you.
0: Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help.
1: Find an agent today at
0: statefarm.com. The flooding tunnel's over that ridge. We'll get in that way. What was your job when you were
1: based here? Sanitation. Sanitation? (laughs) Then how do you know how to disable the shields? I don't. I'm here to record Binge Mode. People are counting on us. The galaxy is counting on us. Binge Mode has adult content and spoilers. We'll use the Force. That's not how the Force works.
0: And now Binge Mode. Come on.
1: Forgive me. I feel it again. call pull to the light. Supreme Leader senses it. Show me again the power of the darkness. And I will
0: let nothing stand in our way.
1: Show me. Grandfather. And I will finish what you started. Hello! Yeah!
0: And welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars. Oh. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Ooh! I'm Mallory Rubin, editor in chief of theRinger.com. Oh, what a great website! So good. Joining me today, now that he's finished. Refinishing Kylo's chambers after his latest lightsaber outburst.
1: Got to take a chill pill. Take some kava, maybe. Show more respect to for your CBD. workplace, Kylo.
0: Stringer, senior creative, your Jedi master, Jason Concepcion. Mal, yeah,
1: you're afraid. I am. That you will never be as strong as binge mode Star Wars, where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe from the Skywalker Saga films to the anthology films to the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets the galaxy far, far away. All leading up to the release this week oh my God. of Star Wars episode IX, The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. Please make the journey to Starkiller base with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us. Give us the five-star ratings! We'll send the Rattars after you, and they're disgusting. <laughs> Although probably tasty. Oh, Please they do fo- have those tentacles that you love. Let's fry, fry those up. <laughs> Please also follow <laughs> us on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to post your favorite BB-8 gifts. Mm. Also, head over to the ringer.com shop and check out our brand new Binge Mode birch and feel free to exchange some with Uncar Plut for food portions. Stay away from me. Plut is plut stingy bastard. Dummy
0: plut. Last time on binge mode. Hey, we've had a, a lot of binge modes lately. We explored and concluded our original trilogy podcast run yes. and most recently we dove into chapter 6 of the Mandalorian the prisoner. And today, we're diving deep. Deep into 2015 Star Wars episode 7 Force Awakens, the film that kicked off the sequel trilogy and Disney's Star Wars era. As always, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from this film and the entire Star Wars saga to date. Yes. Taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon. Yes. Into account. So watch your back at NEMA Outpost because it's time to head to Jakku. Jason. Yeah. It's true. The Force, the Jedi. All of it. It's true, including this podcast being too long for us to have the crawl. So we're getting right to it today. Woo! That gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings and use the Force. The defining theme of this episode is revival. Yeah!
1: Let's start with the revival of Star Wars movie making. Hit that reset button. The mouse is in the house. the Disney acquisition reset
0: era. Disney, of course, purchased Lucasfilm in 2012, for a crisp $4.05 billion, which seemed like a lot at the time. Is that all in—how do you— like, What a bargain.
1: Do you just, like, write a check? Like, what is so— oh, <laughs> It's all in Calamari flan. It's all in flan, just yeah. round flan. By the way— Mando wanted to give them more, but— <laughs> Looks delicious, by the way, the <laughs> Calamari flan.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. So, when the acquisition was announced, yes. the plans for making Episode 7, for making this new trilogy, this being the signature film, the kickoff, all part of the announcement, also part of the announcement. Co-chairman of Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, was being promoted to president of Lucasfilm. And according to a Bruce Handy Vanity Fair article, Lucas had personally asked Kennedy, who had worked closely with Spielberg for years, to take over for him. What role was Georgian? Creative consultant. Wonderful. On future films. Here's what he had to say about the deal.
1: Quote, for the past 35 years, one of my greatest pleasures has been to see Star Wars pass from one generation to the next. It's now time for me to pass Star Wars onto a new generation of filmmakers. I've always believed that Star Wars could live beyond me, and I thought it was important to set up that transition during my lifetime. In a November 2019 interview with Rolling Stones' Brian Hyatt, Kennedy said of this new beginning, quote, Just the fact that George asked me to do this. I felt a tremendous responsibility with stepping in and taking care of the franchise. And if there was going to be new movies, to really pull a team around this that cared as much as he did. And Disney CEO Bob Iger, crushing it of late, captured the pressure in an interview with Variety co-editor-in-chief Claudia Eller when saying of the importance of The Force Awakens in the wake of the acquisition of Lucasfilm by Disney. Quote, I keep telling J.J. Abrams this is a $4 billion movie. No pressure, bro. We need to treat this very special. It's an unbelievable privilege and an unbelievable responsibility to take a jewel and treat it in a way that is respectful of its past but brings it into the future.
0: So the stakes were pretty clear right away. Not everybody gets to make Star Wars. Not everybody gets to own Star Wars IP and be in charge of making Star Wars. Who was tasked with this first installment while you just said one of the names. J.J. Abrams brought on, of course, to direct Episode 7, The Force Awakens, and obviously is coming back to direct Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. Uh, Ryan Johnson directed the film in between, mm-hmm. which we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about shortly. Abrams knew Lucas socially. That Vanity Fair piece has a nugget in it about how Abrams was at George Lucas's wedding. Yeah. But taking over somebody's world... It's a different thing entirely. Obviously, Abrams though is is known as a Star Wars guy. He himself has assumed the Star Wars persona, famous for saying back in the day when he was working on Star Trek, "I've always been much more of a Star Wars guy than a Star Trek guy." Screenwriters, of course, Lawrence Kasdan, hello, JJ Abrams, and Michael aren't so aren't was working on the first yes. version of the script, spent a lot of time on it, said he needed a lot more time, and that was not acceptable. He was
1: <laughs> the first of many people to be swallowed up in the production churn yes. surrounding the, the making of these movies. Yes. So the daunting nature of the task was not lost
0: on a single person who was involved hey, with I'll it. Know. From the... Bean counters to the creators, to the people actually appearing on screen.
1: Mal, this is a $4 billion podcast, this episode. (laughs) I just want you to be ready for that.
0: So, from the Hyatt Rolling Stone piece, there is the following Carrie Fisher quote that it feels, even though it was specific to one thing, very emblematic of really the entire endeavor, the task facing all parties. Quote, think about it what it would be to make three of these movies a million years ago, and now let's do it again. Only you're 40 years older, and there's a lot to live up to, or down. And people want it to be the same, but better.
1: That really is an effective snapshot. That sums it up. Well, she's a, you know, script doctor, writer. She knows how to spin a yarn, and she knows what the formula is there.
0: So on the one hand, clearly everybody felt the burden of this. But the other through line of all of these comments is that they also— recognized that it was an honor, an honor and a privilege to get to be the people who were bringing Star Wars back into the world. But they had to decide exactly how to bring it back. Where were they going to set the story? Who were they going to focus it on? Why, here and now, why did we end up Mm -hmm. getting The Force Awakens in the time period that we got it in, 30 years after Battle of Endor? J.J. Abrams, in that same Rolling Stone piece, explained it as follows.
1: With any movie that ends with going off in the sunset and a celebratory moment, you can ask, well, what happened the day after? Then decades go past. We were literally asking, well, what happened to the disbanded empire? What happened to the Republic? To which Extended Universe fans would say... Well, we know. (laughs) Uh, Kasdan continued from that same interview, quote, someone's story doesn't end with the big triumph. Life goes on. In those 30 years, a lot of things have happened in my life. So you have to assume that things have happened to these characters. And that was part of the fun of it.
0: This is not the same, but this is sort of similar to the way that Jon Favreau has described why Mm. he's setting The Mandalorian when he's setting it. Obviously, that's earlier in time. That's 9 ABY. But this question of what life looks like after you win... And then, in the case of The Force Awakens, you go a couple decades beyond that when the central figures from the first trilogy who we were so attached to are going to be so much further along in their lives. How did they pass all that time? It is one of the great joys of the movie to catch up with them and see where they are and see how much has changed and also how much has remained the same. And then, of course, because enough time has passed, three decades, the world's full of new people. And they're living in the shadow of what came before, but they also are, hopefully forming their own lives and their own story. And that's a pretty compelling blend and certainly something that if you have to start somewhere, makes sense as a starting point. Place it far enough into the future that we
1: have all these new people we can focus on. But close enough that we still have those connections, those threads, the people are still alive and they're at a different stage of their life now. That blend of the familiar and the fresh. So how did it do? Biggest opening weekend ever at the time, though it's since been passed by Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. Overall, it reached $937 million domestic, $2.07 billion global. That's a lot. That Last n- time I checked, that's half of the cost of acquiring Lucasfilm. <laughs> it's huge. just the one movie, huh? That $937 million <laughs> domestic number is number one all time in the U.S., $78 million ahead of Endgame. Adjust that for inflation. It falls from the top spot to number 11 behind A New Hope, but ahead of every other Star Wars movie. Pretty huge. The hype
0: was legit, man. Yeah,
1: it was absolutely legit. People
0: wanted more Star Wars. There was a little bit of the, oh God, I hope we don't have the prequel thing again, right?
1: And I think that was very clearly in everyone's mind. Including the people making it. Absolutely. As you like to bring up regularly. The the people making this movie. Abrams Charger comment. I mean, they signaled very clearly in the run-up to this movie, in the marketing, and in the interviews, hey, we know you hated the prequels. Mm-hmm. They we're hated n- them. We're not giving you that. We're going to give you what you loved about Star Wars. right? And they did that. Whatever you think of the way they went about doing that is how you interpret this film likely. Right. But that is what they sought out to do and that is what they did. And largely, it was a success.
0: Uh, we will get into some of the uh, gripes that people and us as well have yeah. about the film. But largely incredibly successful, 93% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 86% among fans. And on that note, with the prequels, mm-hmm. that was at the heart of a lot of the critical writing around the film, too. Here's a snippet from Anthony Lane. Something more urgent than metaphysics is at issue, namely this, paying to watch a new Star Wars movie in the wake of its predecessors, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> Revenge of the Sith was good, but we'll table that for now. Is like returning to a restaurant that gave you severe food poisoning on your last three
1: visits. Anthony Lane, my guy.
0: Fire take. But broadly, most critics were pleased with the film. Yeah.
1: Matt Zoller-Seitz, writing for RogerEbert.com, had some high praise. The very first line of his review reads, as follows Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens is the film that J.J. Abrams was put on Earth to make. Now, what about the negatives? The negatives... To sum them up before we kind of get into the details of some of this. And basically, this is a note for note remake of, remake New of A New Hope. Richard Brody. In The New Yorker, quote, this taut calculation of emotional effect has a specific and unfortunate impact on the viewing experience. The movie is fast moving, featuring rapid action within the frame, rapid camera movements, and rapid cutting from shot to shot. Yet it feels sluggish throughout because the speed of thought is slow. Oof. Abrams delivers exactly what he wants to deliver, no more no less. He later continues, the hearty sentiment and the breathlessly clever plotting of The Force Awakens are delights, but narrowly limited delights. There's pleasure within measure, but no uninhibited joy or terror, no ecstasy, no unmanaged passions. The secrets of the movie are the secrets of its plot. The mysteries are purely narrative, not at all visual, symbolic, metaphorical, or experiential. Nothing of the true force of the cinema.
0: And fan response largely mirrored that. You had a lot of people who said, I'm delighted to have Star Wars back in my life. And, you know, by the standards of the prequels, this was pretty damn good. Right. You also had... The complaints about the New Hope redux aspect and feeling like it wasn't fresh enough. And it's interesting, I think, to think back on that now, actually, in light of the blowback to The Last Jedi, which we will talk about more when we get to The Last Jedi. This is a pro-Last Jedi podcast. You've been warned, proceed accordingly. But the blowback to that was, it's too different. Right. It changes too much of what I think I know and what I'm meant to understand. But when people got something that was too similar, that didn't feel right either. And so, and I'm not saying that either of those are right or wrong. I just think hey, it's an interesting insight into
1: discussing the idea I, of what, what fans want Star Wars to be. Now. I think that I certainly understand coming off of the prequels, you've just acquired, your Disney, you've just acquired this crown jewel. And you're thinking, okay, we have a roadmap for what works. So let's play it safe here, mm-hmm. movie one, and let's simply follow it. Empire becomes First Order. We've still got the stormtroopers' Super weapon again, but let's make it bigger. Force-sensitive, orphaned kid who dreams of something bigger, and let's put her on a desert planet as well. All that kind of stuff. Uh, Secret plans and droids. Yeah, that worked the last time. Great, let's do it again. And I think for the most parts, whether consciously or unconsciously, it does generate those emotional beats and... There is a thrill of the nostalgia yes. and a kind of like almost like metamythic feeling of experiencing these story elements mm-hmm. get chopped up once again and passed down to another generation. Like, oh, we've had our Star Wars. Now, here's your right. Star Wars for you. Yeah, fr- and a fresh coat of paint on the car you already know you want to drive. And I think that there is, there is something to be said and to admire in that. So there's a,
0: I think, again, emblematic quote. This one's from Kathleen Kennedy, very much in line with what you just described. This is from the Bruce Handy Vanity Fair piece. Quote, it's sort of like going to a concert where you want to hear the new stuff that they've written, but really you want to hear some of the old songs. And we're in a similar kind of thing. We're getting the band back together and we know that people are going to want to be reminded of the things they love, but they're going to expect to have new experiences. So that was the balancing act. That was the core dilemma. Mm -hmm. And really in many ways, remain so as we continue on through this trilogy. How much of storytelling that challenges your preconceived notions of what Star Wars is supposed yes. to be, are you ready to accept? And how much of that are you afraid of? With The Force Awakens, there was one person we have recently learned hated it. Who hated it?
1: George Lucas himself. Georgie Lucas hated it. In his memoir, The Ride of a Lifetime, Lessons Learned from 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company, Bob Iger revealed that, quote, George felt betrayed by The Force Awakens and the beginning of the Disney Star Wars era. He seemed to have two main complaints. One, Disney did not use the outlines for three new stories despite purchasing them as part of the sale. From Iger's memoir, quote, George knew we weren't contractually bound to anything, but he thought that our buying the story treatments was a tacit promise that we'd follow them. And he was disappointed that his story was being discarded. Number two, it wasn't fresh. From Iger's memoir, on George's response to screening the film, he, quote, didn't hide his disappointment. There's nothing new, he said. In each of the films in the original trilogy, it was important to him to present new worlds, new stories, new characters, and new technologies. In this one, he said, there weren't enough visual or technical leaps forward. Iger continues, quote, he wasn't wrong, but he also wasn't appreciating the pressure we were under to give ardent fans a film that felt quintessentially Star Wars. And that's it, mm-hmm. really. Yep. That's it in a nutshell. Hey, George, I get it. But we just shelled out 4.05 billion. Yeah. Like on the bar head, we just put it down. And we got to hit a single. Mm-hmm. We got to get on base. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and that's it. Right. Cause sometimes when you're trying to hit a home run, you strike out. Exactly. And we just, listen, we just, we need to get on base here yes. because we spent, again, 4.05 billion. Iger added, quote, We'd intentionally created a world that was visually and tonally connected to the earlier films, to not stray too far from what people loved and expected. And George was criticizing us for the very thing that we were trying to do. George Lucas
0: is a pioneer. Yes. And one of the core aspects of the identity of what Star Wars is, is that he was always innovating and inventing as he was making the films. He
1: considers that a huge part of his legacy, as he should. As he should. It's a remarkable gift that he's given to all of us. Yes. It's a fascinating perspective, and again, you're talking about a person who, for each and every movie, including the trilogies, pushed the existing technology to the absolute bleeding edge. In many cases, having stuff invented, hardware and software specifically, to make these movies. Right. And I think to try and intuit what he's talking about, maybe what he's saying is, yeah, this looks great, shot well, everything is beautiful and shiny. There's like four Marvel movies that probably right. look where's like the th- Guard- right. Guardians of the Galaxy. Where's the looks thing like you this. had never seen before? Yeah, where's the, where is that?
0: That's reasonable. And I guess the other thing is that for us, yeah. when we're sitting here talking about it, anybody who's watching it in the theater at home, whatever, we're measuring it against the past. Yeah, we are measuring it against our experience with Star Wars, our appreciation for and understanding of Star Wars. George, who, as you just noted, had handed over these outlines, yeah. is measuring it against the future that he had already built in his mind. Yeah. And there's not a person alive who can understand what that's like. And I feel bad for him. In I that do feel sense. bad. Now, he cashed $4 billion. Like, can't, I feel, can't feel bad? bad.
1: <laughs> not at all. You buy a like a country.
0: But and it's it's look, it's not the same buy as the what, Knicks, <laughs> it's not the same as what we talk about with George Martin. But I think there is a little bit of that element of empathizing for what it must feel like for a genius and someone who has achieved something revelatory to watch somebody else take over or finish their work. And in that same Rolling Stone piece, Kathleen Kennedy was asked about this and addressed these comments. And she said, quote, I think there's plenty of examples where people create something that is fundamental to who they are, where it's difficult letting go and watching that become something different. So I think initially that was difficult for George. I don't think he anticipated how hard that would And remember a quote we had in our Return of the Jedi podcast, the Harrison Ford comment about how I always thought Luke Skywalker was George. Like, George is in these movies in so many ways. The Kennedy quote continues, and J.J. came into it with such enthusiasm and, frankly, reverence for Star Wars and George and had to find what was personal for him. He had to make it his own. Every director who comes into a movie has to make something their own. They have to find themselves in the storytelling, and then that's going to become a different point of view. And I think that's all George was reacting to.
1: It's it's interesting because fascinating. That's a fascinating kind of spin on it because I think you could argue that I think George is saying the exact opposite opposite of this. Right? There's he's saying it looks too much like what I did. Right? Do your thing. What's the your thing that only you have that you are putting into this world that we've never seen before? This is an interesting comment. I I agree with you. I think essentially George is saying, hey, you just did what I did, only you did it with 2015 filmmaking technology.
0: That second part of that quote there is, I think, something we should return to when we talk about The Last Jedi and when we eventually watch and, and respond to The Rise of Skywalker. Because thinking about that here, thinking about The Last Jedi blowback, the change in the anthology film strategy after yeah. Solo, the new Disney Plus era, it has never been more fascinating to ask a question that has always been fascinating, which is, what are the people actually making Star Wars want it to be? Forget what we, the fans, want it to be for
1: a minute. Who is in control? Who has license? Who has liberty? All the criticisms of this current trilogy, whether you agree with them or not, I think all come from a single place, and that place is that from movie to movie, it's kind of clear that they're calling a lot of audibles, that there wasn't an overarching story arc, a spine that reaches all the way to the end. Say what you want about the prequels, okay? They're bad movies, two of them anyway. There's never a feeling watching them that, like George Lucas doesn't know where he's going. They're right. hard to watch. The bad dialogue's bad, but you're always like, "Oh yeah, that you are makes it." Moving sense. toward the We're fall of Anakin's, moving towards this thing. Yes, um, and That's I think exactly right. And, and I love the Last Jedi. I, I like the Force Awakens, but there's not that feeling. Even within the Force Awakens, kind of from scene to scene, it's you know like Ray having the vision with Mos Kanata, knowing what we know is after Last Jedi. It feels like something changed there. It Feels like something was cut, mm-hmm. and. That's not a feeling you get with either the original trilogy or the prequels.
0: Well, I would quibble with that a bit because we we spend so much time talking about how Darth Vader wasn't Luke's father from right. the beginning, how Luke and Leia I, weren't siblings from the beginning. That's a
1: great point. And I think those changes, which clearly George retconned in the middle of production, right? I think he had so much of everything else. Yes, yes that was a thing he didn't necessarily have at the beginning, but- he was so in command and so sure footed with the story writ large that it wasn't like a bad Jenga build where you pull that out and everything collapses. That's Whereas, right. like some of the last Jedi stuff, like race parentage or right. like does it matter? What about Snoke? Feel like, uh oh, don't touch that one. Sure. Because if you touch that one, the whole thing crumbles. Yes,
0: that is correct. And that that brings us to the plot of The Force Awakens itself and to Rey. We're going to start with her. We're going to go kind of character by character here. We're going to keep it a little Mm -hmm. looser and more free-flowing and casual than we typically do because we have a new movie coming out this week. The Rise of Skywalker comes out this week. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that is different. We don't know how Rey's story is going to conclude. We don't know how Kylo's story is going to conclude. We certainly have things that we're hoping for. Yes. As but we all are. As we all are. And the way, that we, the way that we watch and the way that we process The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi will ultimately, inevitably to some extent and some degree, change a little bit Absolutely. based on how this trilogy ends. But taking The Force Awakens on its own for now and with a little bit of Last Jedi injected in here and obviously everything that came before for the Leia, Han, Luke class of characters Let's dive into it. Let's start with Ray and the shadow of Luke hanging over our story as we meet our new hero,
1: Ray. First line of the crawl Luke Skywalker has vanished. And it's a bracing way to oh, yeah. begin this movie. We soon realize that Ray is the person more than anyone else who will fill the void in the galaxy for the characters who need this new hope and for us as Star Wars fans as we look mm-hmm. for some kind of like center of gravity yes. in, in the midst of all these new characters. Daisy Ridley, who plays Ray, wasn't a big Star Wars fan before landing the role. Her first major one, according to an interview in the Mirror after she got the part, asked if Daisy was a Star Wars fan, her dad said, quote, she is now. Great stuff. Snitches, <laughs> get stitches, dad. What are you doing? Another iconic nugget from Mr. Rids: quote, she came home and said she'd had coffee with Harrison Ford and he said, don't call me Mr. Ford, call me Harrison. Mm, Gladly. He's a very sweet guy, though he looks terribly grumpy. (laughs) She said he looks much better than he does in films and he's a much nicer guy.
0: Imagine at any point in your life being in a position where you could say to somebody else, Harrison Ford looks much better than he does in films.
1: I'm looking in your eyes right now. I'm like my like face a, is like I know, twitching like a right now as
0: I think about this. Speaking of Harrison Ford, in The Story Awakens, the table read, which is a really charming little featurette where you can see the entire cast get together and read this script together for the first time. Mark Hamill is the one who reads it aloud to them. It's very cool. Harrison said, Harrison, listen to me like we're best friends and go way back. Mr. Ford said... I was impressed by J.J.'s casting instincts. I loved that they were who they are. I thought they were audacious choices, bold choices. They were unique, strong individuals, and I love that. Now, he's obviously talking about the whole new cast. So, Daisy Ridley as Rey, Adam Driver as Kylo, John Boyega as Finn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This whole new era of Star Wars characters that, just like other people— grew up on Luke and leigh Han. Now people grow up on Ray and Kylo and Finn and Poe, Oscar Isaacs. It's actually just like a really incredible thing. And we're going to talk about this a lot throughout this podcast yes. and all of these sequel pods, but building these stories around Ray, around a female protagonist, is incredibly meaningful it's a big deal. to a lot of people. And J.J. Abrams has said in many interviews that it was always going to be that. That's always who they were going to build the story around. But no matter who it had been, it wasn't Luke, right? This was someone else in the central hero role. And so the challenge was colossal, especially because the movie also features Luke. So you have to build somebody up in his image, in his shadow, when that shadow is actively present. So there's a nugget from screenwriter Michael Arndt, who we mentioned earlier. This is from a post-screening Q&A, and this was a nugget that came from an EW.com piece on this Q&A following the film's release.
1: Quote, it just felt like every time Luke came in and entered the movie, he just took it over. And suddenly you didn't care about your main character anymore because it's, oh, fuck, Luke Skywalker's here. I want to see what he's going to do. And I think that that's... Certainly explains why the script was taking so long. I think that that's the right instinct, too, honestly. Like, let these new characters establish themselves because Luke is such, you know, for lack of a better word, like a mythic,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: almost like within pop culture... An almost quasi like religious oh figure, yeah. well, you know the what I Jedi mean?
0: Jedi are uh, religion, so. and so I
1: just think that in retrospect is the correct instinct. Yes, and as we stated uh, moments ago, there are myriad parallels in the movie between A New Hope and so The Force Awakens, and specifically between the way Ray is depicted and the way we came to know Luke Skywalker. Both came up on this desert planet. In the case of The Force Awakens, it's Jakku. In the case of The New Hope, it's Tatooine. Inner Rim versus Outer Rim, that doesn't Mm -hmm. matter so much. But it's mostly just this feeling of desolation, of loneliness, of isolation, of being marooned in this place where Nothing's happening while everything is happening out in the wire universe. This is great. One of my favorite shots in *The Force Awakens* is Ray's gotten her instant bread and she's sitting in the um, yeah. the hull of her at at, and she's just watching ships take off and go off into space. And she's wearing her uh, Rebel Alliance helmet. It's great. They're both searching for family, yes. searching for a purpose in this world. Grappling with the sense that something or someone is out there yes. or something is awaiting them, something but, to discover, but not knowing how to engage with it right. in any kind of way. Of course, the parental question looms large <laughs> yes. over both characters. Yeah. Um, the discovery of their force powers handled quite differently. Luke, in retrospect, a much slower role, he manages to repel a couple of shots from the practice droid, whereas Ray. Is a natural in a way that Luke is not? But still like that kind of awakening of something inside a person that makes them special. Droid companions, uh-huh. BB-8 versus R2. Leather jacket wearing pal. Crucial. Finn <laughs> in this movie versus Han in the A New Hope. That
0: harmony... Of establishing all of those parallels that you just went through between Ray and Luke, but also having the discipline to wait, even though Luke is the very first line in the crawl, to wait to bring him into the film so that you could let Ray build up her own identity and legacy. Right away, there's this blankness cast upon her that really reinforces the task ahead because you literally can't see her face. Yeah. She's out scavenging and she's ra- she's got all of these scarves wrapped around her neck and her face and her head. She's got the goggles on. She's basically just one with the landscape. She's yeah. completely blended in, faceless, nameless. This archetypal hero completely waiting for us to discover who she is and more importantly for her to discover who she is she's waiting for that call she hasn't had it yet and in her case scavenging living off of the scraps
1: of the land the graveyard of giants yeah, this is Think so about that name. this is so metatextual so much of the movie these movies are metatextual but this in particular this introduction to her is so meta
0: hugely the the metapotency of watching her on this afternoon jaunt through the scrapyard, basically the, the the strong, deeply impactful poetry of it. She is taking a tour through Star Wars history in those moments. She is going through Star Destroyers. She is sitting outside of an ATAT. She is uniting us in these travails with the past, with that lore that we either already love and cherish, or if we're new people coming to these films for the first time are just getting introduced to, but no, have these visual signifiers that you can recognize no matter what. And she's this, this, like, speck on the screen against this hulking mass of history and expectation.
1: And not just just history, but, like, unmoving for lack of a better word, dead history, Uh you know? Now here's something new. Right, there's something eternal about it, fixed. Right, it's fixed. It's just there. You're in the shadow of it and you're so small and she's so small in the shadow of it, but grows in our estimation as we get to know her. I think that there's something so poetic about it. Totally. The way that she navigates it, the nature of her movements. Yeah. It's literally...
0: Jumping around it, sliding. she's so she's a natural.
1: It. She's very comfortable here in the shadows of John. There's
0: something despite the the incongruity of her size against the size of these machines where, because of the nature of the way she moves through it and the confidence with which she does, where she dominates, she dominates that space. She dominates that history. Mm. She becomes the master of it. And you understand just immediately, how something fundamental in the story has changed. It's her story right now. She's the one in charge. And the landscape is, aside from those totems to Star Wars history, barren. Absolutely barren. Wasteland. Literal vultures (laughs) in one shot picking over the remnants. And we're going to talk more about those remnants and how Jakku came to be this way when Jason does his Jedi Temple later today. So stay tuned. But why does that context matter? Why does that backdrop matter? Because Ray, like all of us, is a product of her surroundings. She is a product of that hardship. She has to trade, as we see, her yield from a hard Mm. day's work for food. She needs to exert this back-breaking effort, this hard labor, just to be able to receive in turn the basic sustenance of life.
1: There's a shot in this that visually recalls the binary sunset shot from A New Hope. But if there's a moment that evoked the feeling of that shot in me, it would be she's just scavenged. She's cleaning off her parts. And then that's there's that moment where she looks up and she sees the old woman scavenging. And she's like, and, and, me, and, and it's know? really some great visual filmmaking because you understand immediately what's happening. It's like, is this me? And come back here in 40 years. Is that me? And there's something so poignant about that that powers the rest of her arc throughout this film. Yes. A snapshot of how quickly
0: life can pass you by. And we don't know anything about that woman. We don't know if Ray knows anything about that woman, but it almost doesn't matter. And that's kind of what makes it so tragic is that that person has lived a full life, too. Mm. But does anybody know about it? Does it matter if anybody knows about it? And you know that Ray is processing all of those things and that she, like all of the other characters in the story, who do look up into the sky and watch those ships and think about how they want to travel and be the ones to see something, that call and that pull is inspiring and aspirational, but the underbelly of it is that there's an active, depressive quality to it when it's what's missing from your life.
1: Yes. And uh, we get a feel immediately for the kind of like edge of survival existence that Ray is living through. She trades in this stuff, and it's literally for food. She's bartering for food. We see her back at her abode, which is again the hull of this like crashed at at. Um, She's got all these totems of things that she aspires to, these little little doll of like a Rebel Alliance pilot. She's wearing a little Rebel Alliance helmet, makes the bread, and then sits there and just watches these craft leave the planet, this planet that she is, for lack of a better word, absolutely marooned on. And you have to wonder like— to skip ahead, there's that moment where Finn first sets eyes on her, and she's kicking the ass of like these two like bounty hunters or scoundrels or whoever they're trying to steal BBA from her. And it's really no surprise. This is a person who's like lived their life alone on right. this planet and That's survived this whole time. So Ridley to Hyatt in that Rolling Stone interview on appreciating Ray's identity as uh, non-royalty, quote: "Ray isn't born into privilege," she says. My cousin's daughter said something about wanting me to be another princess. And I'm like, no, girls don't have to be princesses. They can be, you know, scavengers. Love that. Yeah, Very important. And then she hears BB chirping. Yeah.
0: In need, clearly, because of that ass Tito. Tito, what a jerk. And this is, on the one hand, it's just a meet-cute, right? You got to yeah, get yeah, the yeah. characters together. But one of the things that this movie does really well is, through the nature of just moving the characters around the board, we learn things about them. Yes. So exactly. we learn that Ray's instinct immediately is to help, to help somebody else in need. She is a protector. She's brave. She's bold and also can speak an alien dialect here. Very she impressive. Is. We'll hear shortly that she can speak yep. binary too. And the tenderness with which she fixes BB's little antenna oh, is just special. It's wonderful. We're going to talk a lot about BB 8 later, but. He seems so touched to be cared for by her in this fashion. And, you know, he has a wonderful relationship with Poe.
1: Really tight relationship. Lovely bond. bond.
0: It's not like he has been neglected like some of the other droids who we've met in the story. But he senses that she is a kind soul. And there's this nice feature act called Building BB-8 that's fascinating and actually really worth watching. There's a great little Daisy Ridley quote in there. I remember when me and BB-8 had our first scene. You could feel the love and the warmth. How wonderful is that? And again, that bond, that instant nature of it, it tells us something about the kind of person Ray is. She can speak binary. We know that she has all of these skills she's accomplished. She responds to BB-8's display of emotion. She gives him, oh, you go this way. This is where you're going. And he wants to stay with her. And then she's like, all right. The emotion that he is conveying, this desire to have a companion, she is sympathetic and receptive to it. And then when she, again, somebody who is living meal to meal, yeah, is offered 60 portions in exchange for a droid who... That's a great setup. She had no prior history with. Right, she has no attachments to this droid. What does she do? She says he's not for sale. And then they, she fights to protect
1: him and keep him safe because... She is somebody who has wanted that, right? And that is an expression of her essential loneliness. She's just craving any kind of kindness and interaction in this world that is so purely transactional, that is so purely about, like, trade this thing for food. She tells B.B. quite early on, I know all about waiting, but we also see that she's waiting for something. There's something there for her, for my family. They'll be back one day. When Finn enters her life, she is immediately taken by the idea of the resistance and this kind of like, all of a sudden, the things that are going on in the wider galaxy crashing into her very small orbit. Uh And then the same thing happens when she meets Han, when she hears about Luke. It's like coming alive with these sudden interaction with these stories that are more than just legends all of a sudden. Now they're real. And again, she's on Jakku, which is even shittier than Tatooine. Like even more nothing. Like the reason people are here is because all this stuff is wrecked here. Even more outside of the kind of normal swirl of the galaxy. And she absolutely comes alive when she's presented with the opportunity to interact with these things, to meet people, to communicate, to touch people.
0: Yeah, when she says about Luke, I thought he was a myth. It's like she got to walk through the wardrobe into Narnia. Yeah. You know, or or maybe even it's still a degree removed from that. She got to see that there was a wardrobe in the first place for the first time. And she and Finn developed this really quick rapport and this really crackling, fun chemistry right in the, in the Nima outpost sequences when all of them, BB-8, Ray, Finn, yeah. they all have this protective instinct around each other and also they're all leaders. Finn's pulling her hand right. She's, She's like, stop Don't, taking my yes. hand. And I, you know, I love that because she is, one of the great achievements of her character is that she reminds us that multiple things can be true at once. You can be lonely and you can want a connection while also being strong and fiercely right. independent. Wanting to have love in her life and other people in her life doesn't mean that she needs right. them in order to be fully realized and self-actualized. She's her own person. And that independent spirit is, of course, right at home on the Millennium Falcon, from which she and Finn and BB-8 end up escaping from Jakku, despite her that one's garbage line, which is a tough look for our guy, the Millennium Falcon.
1: It is kinda and it's a junky, it's a junky ship. <laughs> it's a junky appearing ship. I love the the we use this shorthand a lot, raise a natural natural pilot. She knows how to fix ships. natural. And one of the criticisms not worth amplifying about this movie this. Yeah. was like, oh, well, how does she know how to do all this stuff? Yeah.
0: Can't stand Here it. Here's a
1: person who is Living inside of technology all the time, exploring every exploring day, exploring every day the inner workings of these technological marvels that are now crashed. Having to discern what part is what, what part is worth something, what this right. does. Who to, literally to eat? If also I,
0: she's a prodigious force user, right? Nobody complained about these things with Anakin L- or Luke. By leaving the
1: way. that aside, for I now. wonder what the difference is. I wonder what the difference is. Here's a person who's yearned her whole life to, like, get on a ship and fucking leave. And it's really absolutely no surprise that when she gets the opportunity to fly a ship, she's like, wait till I show you what I can do. Yes, and then also the pull back home for the family,
0: that push-pull of what she wants, but also what she thinks she has to wait for is just fascinating. And the way that she flies the Falcon, to your point, it's like she said the right password at the saloon door. Like, this is an entrance exam that Star Wars fans
1: are giving you and you pass. It's like a thrilling kind of recklessness, you know, totally. like
0: her own style. Yeah. Her own attitude, but the fact that she has style and has attitude is what
1: feels so right about it. She also flies, you know, Han Solo great 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 pilot. He flies with a reverence for the Falcon. She fittingly flies with a complete lack of reverence for this craft which she considered to be a piece of junk when she got into the it. The
0: reverence is for the nature of the experience yes. itself. And that, and that's so right. Yes, and the the, like you were saying earlier about whether it's Luke or Han or the Falcon, the way that she responds to kind of getting to crack open the storybook and see yeah. it come to life once she realizes who these people are and what these things are is so illuminating because we understand that she has been consuming this lore, consuming yeah. these myths. She's a, She's something of a student of history. She knows, for example, about the Kessel Run, even though she thinks it's 14 parsecs and Han is eager to correct the record. And when Chewie is wounded and Ray has to sit in as Han's co-pilot, as, as Finn tends to Chewie, that there's almost nothing that could be more pivotal for forging a relationship yes. between Han and another person than having him there in that co-pilot seat. And they have, again,
1: such an easy grace together and an easy chemistry together. The way that Kylo and Snoke speak of the awakening that they have sensed, clearly of Rey and, and tapping into her ability to manifest the Force, makes her importance in the galaxy and her potential as a Jedi quite clear. But her power isn't all that's bubbling up. It's also her knowledge and her quickly expanding horizons, the sense of the things that she might be able to do. And it must be so incredibly heady to one moment be literally just a scavenger. Mm -hmm. And then something great happens. You find a droid and it's nice. And he's talking about a secret mission, but you know, droids talk about a lot of shit. You don't know. And the next thing you know, you're being chased by stormtroopers and literally getting on a spaceship that, it has light speed capabilities and right. is able to leave the planet. And then it, you learn it's the Falcon and you're with Han Solo. It must be an incredible experience. So she, they get up into space and she meets Han. He says, ever since Luke disappeared, people have been looking for him. She says, why did he leave? He was training a new generation of Jedi. One boy, an apprentice turned against him, destroyed it all. Luke felt responsible. He just walked away from everything. And then she says, the Jedi were real? I used to wonder about that. And this is an incredible callback to Han's yeah. initial reluctance yep. to accept that the Force and the Jedi could right. be a real thing in the galaxy. I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo <laughs> jumbo, a magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. Like. Crazy thing is, it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it. It's all true. And it's as much a message for Rey as it is the audience. Totally. Like, it's like, that moment really grounded me in this movie because yeah. it was like, hey, it's going to be fine.
0: That's like the warm bathwater. A hundred percent. right
1: in. Like, this is, hey, listen, I know you're seeing a lot of new stuff. We've got some new characters. We've got some new approaches. It's Star Wars. You're going to be fine. <gasps> and
0: it's so interesting to your point from a minute ago about the heady nature of learning all this and hearing all this and being exposed to it. I'm always so fascinated, no matter how many times I watch it, by the numerous moments when Ray says, Basically, I have, we have to go back, right? Right, we have to go back to Jakku. And there is that element of disbelief or almost like a not feeling worthy right. of what has unfolded in front of you. And, you know, we made fun of Luke for it, how all he wanted to do was get out, didn't mm. want to serve another harvest on the moisture farm,
1: but as soon as it's actually time. It's like, oh, whoa, 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 wait, wait, I wait. can't do that. It's scary because it's something new that you're not ready for, that's, that you're not experienced I with. love that part. I love that too. I love that part because... I think
0: any of us would feel that way. 100%. You know, you get the chance to do something amazing yes. and be exposed to something miraculous. But there's a little part in your in your head that's going to say, well, like, I got to record a podcast
1: tonight. Yeah, I'm not ready. Or it's... I
0: got to, oh, man, someone's waiting for me to, like, do X, Y, or Z yeah. back home. And how many... The courage, when we talk about courage in these stories, we talk about it when it's time to save somebody or time to challenge a foe. But the real courage, the heart of the courage, comes from just being willing to take that step in the first place. When we talked about A New Hope and the Call to Adventure, so much of the heart of that is there is being able to cross through the refusal of
1: the call and being willing to heed it, to feel like it's worth it and that you can. That's a great point. That is like really something so relatable that I'm sure like, you know, people listening to this who go through their daily routine and maybe don't love what they're doing can relate to as well. It's like there is, when you're going through bad times and it's happening a lot and you're like working a drudgery existence, working at a job that you don't love, whatever, There is at least a comfort in that, in that you understand from moment to moment, from hour to hour, from day to day, what it's going to be. And so there is really something bracing about, okay, that's all done. We're doing something else. And wait, wait, hold on. I'm not prepared. I'm not ready for this. Like, I haven't even packed. Like, I'm just wearing these clothes. We're just going to go now, call to adventure. And there's, I love that constant, wait, oh, Mm -hmm. wait, wait, hold on. I'm not ready. It's very human and very relatable. I love it. Also relatable is Ray's response to
0: getting to be on Takodana, this just sense of utter awe. She has this lovely little line. I didn't know there was this much green in the entire galaxy, which is like heartbreaking. There's just so much out there that she hasn't seen. And, you know, as Star Wars fans, we get to see all these different planets, all these different cities, meet all these different peoples, all these different species. To think about what it's like to be be in that world and never get to explore any of it or have access to it is, is like crushing. But when Han offers her a job it is. In, in his fashion, yes. in his fashion, she says again, I've been away from home for too long. And she is awed by the scale too, the scale of what is unfolding in front of her because she has been, again, removed from it, totally sheltered, right? And growing up in the shadow of these fallen warriors and their tools. So when Ray says, what fight? Yeah. She says it not with any, like, kind of dismissive quality. She says it with hunger, with a desire to know and understand. And Maz says, good old Maz, Lupita crushing it. If only we could see Lupita. Channeling channeling Dumbledore right here. (laughs) Absolutely. The only fight against the dark side. Through the ages, I've seen their evil take many forms. The Sith, the Empire. Today, it is the First Order. Their
1: shadows spreading across the galaxy. We must face them fight them and then we get that moment where she is called by something the to the kind of bowels of maz's mansion and she goes down the steps and into the hall and she hears no no herself as a young child then no come back no some kind of conflict and she gets into a room and she opens this quite beautifully crafted little box and sees a silver lightsaber touches it and then all of a sudden she is transported, sounds and vision. She's on some sort of space station and she hears Vader's breathing and then Yoda's voice and then sees a hooded figure that we know is Luke because of the cybernetic hand in the rain, pressing his hand against R2-D2. Kylo in the Knights of Ren looking quite ominous uh-huh. amidst what looks like absolute carnage. Young Rey watching her family fly away and then Obi-Wan's voice. Mm, Chills. These are your first steps. Absolutely incredible scene. It's amazing. And then a flash of the coming forest duel with Kylo Ray is as one would be considering <laughs> yeah. like the, a ma- this is a massive download for a person yes. is disturbed. Yes. Maz tells her that lightsaber was Luke's and his father's before him and now it calls to you. where did oh I get God. it? I'll tell you later. This is like
0: such an incredible one-two punch of yes. now it calls to you is absolute spine-tingling wonder. And then I'll tell you later is just like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah.
1: And again, you can set things up to tell us later, but don't actually say I'll tell you later. You gotta tell us. You better fucking tell us. Can you give me the short version, Miles? Just oh give me the short God. one. Ah! <laughs> 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 And, of course, Ray wants to return to Jakku, and I honestly find this so poignant. Uh Like, because, you know... This exchange is wonderful. uh, Here's a child abandoned on a world. No one knows her. She's essentially creating her life before her eyes with these people that are strangers to her. And the only people that would understand... What that means are these people who knew her from before and she can't share it with them and she wants to. And there's that feeling of, that's beautiful. But God, I'm, I'm away from this place and what if I miss? Well, they come back what and I'm I not there. It? I've been and waiting I, my whole life for I, this one moment. All these callbacks, I gotta get back to Jakku. I find them so incredibly poignant. And then Maz says, dear child, I see your eyes. You already know the truth. Whoever <sighs> you're waiting for on Jakku, they're never coming back. That is just ruthless. Gunning. But there's someone who still could. Luke? The belonging you seek is not behind you, it is ahead. And that's an absolutely lovely idea. Again, amazing. a theme that we return to again and again, the family you choose. But it is so sad for Ray; She has no one to whom she can say, look what I've done, look where I've become, look how far I've come. Maz says, I'm no Jedi, but I know the Force. It moves through and surrounds every living thing. Close your eyes, feel it, the light. It's always been there. It will guide you, the saber. Take it.
0: Sometimes, even if you're not ready, the journey finds you, right? It calls to you. It brings you in. Or Kylo, as he does with Ray, finds her yes. <laughs> in the woods on Takodana. She wants to stand tall and fight. But eventually, it's clear that she is going to have to flee. And there's just this look of absolute terror on her face when he uses the force there to freeze her. She has never been exposed to anything like this. And he, of course, will carry her onto a ship. And then mm-hmm. the interrogation sequence will begin. And... We're going to talk about that from Kylo's perspective mm-hmm. in a few minutes when we get to him. But just from Ray's perspective here. Again, she is fearless in this entire sequence. She calls him, rather than cowering, a creature in a mask. And this first conversation between them is the beginning of, following the earlier whispers and the forest fight, one of the most incredible, complex, and riveting yes. relationships that Star Wars has given us to date. We are very invested in this and hope that it ends in satisfying fashion. Yes. So Kylo sees and preys on Ray's fears. You're so lonely, he says, so afraid to leave. At night, desperate to sleep, you imagine an ocean. I see it. I see the island. This will, of course, prove to be Luke's island on Octo. But she refuses to give him anything. She proves herself equal to resisting his force-driven probes, and she uses her power intuitively, innately, as Kylo will tell Snoke in a few minutes in the Sh- film. Absolutely
1: shocking him, by yes. the way.
0: She is strong with the Force, he says, untrained, but stronger than she knows. But her courage yes. is almost more remarkable than the actual Force powers that she is displaying, her determination, her willingness to turn the tables on Kylo and put him under the microscope. She continues to explore her power and feel her way by using the mind trick intuitively again. Alarming that any training to get past you know Craig, her confidence—that's what we see there—is supreme. Yeah,
1: when she battles Kylo after she witnesses him, along with Chewie, kill Han after seeing him beat up Finn, her view on him is pretty simplistic. You're like you're a thug. You're a villain. Yes, you're an evil this person. This will change, but here, that's what it is. Right. He's one thing to her here. Certainly, in the heat of battle, after seeing him murder the closest thing to a father figure she's ever had in a very brief period of time, but still, you're a monster. She says after he knocks her out. She stirs when Kylo goes to use the Force to take Anakin's saber. She pulls it to her, and that's like that was in- like a really. Moment chill-inducing It's amazing. cool fucking moment. And the surprise on his face as it zooms past him and into her hand, she's using the force and she's using it how she wants to use it. It's not just like, yes, she's still very raw and has no idea how powerful she is, but she's past the kind of just lashing out stage of, of making things move because she's like emotional or angry or doesn't quite know what she's doing. She... Pulled that to her, and it's a thrilling, it's amazing moment. It's amazing, um, and then their attack is the duel. Here is absolutely savage. Super the fact vicious, that violent. he is injured, and the fact that she is just kind of raw and so enraged, there makes, is like an animalistic desperation to it. Yes, there's there is a real fight or Die feeling to this fight, and and you know some of the most visually poetic stuff I think the J.J.'s honestly ever done with the trees falling down around them as they cool. cut and slice, the, and then the, the planet is coming apart. The reflection and shine yes, of the that. lightsabers reflecting off the, the snow, the steam oh, of the yeah. lightsabers, and the, and the sweat of their bodies steaming in the in the cold. I hope we get to see the sweat of their bodies steaming in the rise of Skywalker. May <laughs> <then they> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, fuck. <laughs>
0: That's my personal desire. Hello, we'll see,
1: uh, Rayla. Listen, I
0: ship it.
1: I will I say more it. about. Listen, I've. I, we'll I, get into that at length. We will. Question. I just. I just feel the need to say again. War criminal, numerous times over. The redemption. There needs to be a real redemption. Yeah. The Nothing guys like rem- the healing powers of a good fuck. Hello. It's such a visually stunning sequence. Yes. I love the way. The snow, as we said, reflects the glow from the lightsabers. And then we get the classic Star Wars blue against red glow that's reflected on their faces. Just amazing stuff. In this duel, where
0: Rey is displaying a bit of darkness just because of the savagery that she is deploying, but also goodness because you know that she's fighting to protect Finn, who's there on the ground, everybody else who's embroiled in this mission— But there's an element, as this battle is unfolding, a little bit, I don't want to go too far with the comp, but a little bit of a Luke and Vader duel and Empire aspect, just in the sense that, what did we talk about with Luke? He wasn't ready, yeah, but he knew he had to try, and Rey is not trained. She's not a match, but she can't conceive of any path forward other than attempting to battle and beat Kylo, and because of Kylo's wounds, he took that blaster shot from Chewie, and... They want to put it all on the, the blood loss because of Ray's just the sheer force of her determination and her ferocity. It makes it possible. And the moment when he offers to be her teacher is, of course, one of the first of what wound up being many dark side tests for her. And a sign of their impending intertwined plot, not only here, but really in The Last Jedi. And she resists. She passes that test. It's not interesting to her. Fundamentally, here, not interesting to her. And she beats him wounding his leg, wounding his shoulder, driving his lightsaber down into the snow, that moment when she is just pushing that down and ultimately extinguishes Mm. the blade. And she is stronger than him in this moment. In this moment. She is. When she deals that decisive blow. I loved it. The uppercut slicing his face open, it is like,
1: you almost can't believe you're seeing it. Not because she won, but it's like the... The violence of that. There's a real, it's funny to look back at, you know, especially the New Hope duel. Everybody knows where we stand on the Luke-Darth duel on Bestman. It's incredible. But there is really a ferocity that makes organic sense that's inside of this duel that is absolutely startling. Like even the way Kylo treats Finn when he slashes oh him. God, yeah. It's like, oh my God. You, you really get a feel for just how dangerous these weapons are, how, like, I've said it before, like, I'd probably cut my hand off the first time I, ignite. I don't want to touch a lightsaber if they existed. I'd absolutely hurt myself. You do. I think you'd do well. I love the lightsaber
0: duels in the new movies for that reason. Just the force of it, the physicality of it. There's a great quote in that blueprint of a battle, the snow fight from Daisy Ridley about this sequence. She said, quote, we've got this incredibly strong female character. There's something about this girl that people around her can feel there's something about her that's going to broaden the story. And she is the last man standing, as it were. It's an amazing feeling. And it's an amazing feeling to be watching that. To get to see that and to get to see her, Ray, at the center of that it is really a gift. And then there are only a couple more beats for her character in this movie. She has that lovely moment with Leia yeah, hugging Morning Han. Of course, coming at the expense of Chewie getting his hug. First the medal. Now that I just hope that it happened off screen. We had to yes. get that comic
1: relief moment of, of Chewy with the Roy's actual mother from Succession. Oh my God,
0: yes. Yes, I love that. I was think- I'm sure
1: you were very brave. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded That's, very dangerous. That was
0: great. And I was thinking about how she wouldn't sit and let Kendall bear his soul to her. <laughs> oh my God. I gotta go to bed. It's I've late. Made- I'm sure you're very brave. It's late. And yes, yes, I'm sure
1: you murdered someone. It's late. Right. There's some cold <laughs> pigeon in the, in the fridge if you guys want <laughs>
0: have a little squab, Kendall. <laughs> the really lovely thing about that hug with Leia, yeah. in addition to just obviously the passing of the torch across generations and having Carrie Fisher in this movie again, is that it just feels right to see them together, just like it felt right to see Ray and the Falcon, because she's not just Luke 2.0. She's a little bit of all of them in her, a little bit of Han, a little bit of Luke, a little bit of Leia, and of course, a lot of herself. She is, as much as she is an archetype, she is also an original, and she is her own person. And when she and Chewie fly off, along with R2, to Octo with the complete map now to Luke and she finds him and she reaches out to him with his lightsaber. Of course, the great twist of The Last Jedi of him grabbing it and tossing it it away awaits us. But in that moment, it is the past meeting the future and the stars of Star Wars aligned.
1: Let's talk about Kylo. Hello. Kylo's arrival on Tunnel is an incredible introduction. First of all, the way his shuttle comes down like a bat, like a vampire bat. Snape-esque. Yes, yeah, Snape-esque landing and um, Like you can tell by the look of it. Yeah. I don't like the look of this ship. I love Kylo. Just gonna throw that out there. I think he's I think One he's of a the fantastic. Characters. An absolutely fantastic creation. He is terrifying, but there's also this feel of of which I think is quite conscious mm-hmm. of this. A little bit of a fake it till you make it quality. It's cosplay. A little bit of a play acting, you know, and Snoke will call him out on this as well later on. Wearing a mask, trying to be Vader, and the dichotomy will continue. And he says to Lor Santeca, look how old you've become. Chilling. Something far worse has happened to you. He says, you know what I've come for. I know where you come from before you called yourself Kylo Ren. And this is a tantalizing clue to where Kylo came from, the path that brought him to this incredibly dark place, leading an entire cadre of dark soldiers, part of this infernal leadership of this military organization that has risen up in place of the Empire. And Tekka says, the First Order rose from the dark side, you did not. Uh I'll show you the dark side, (laughs) Kylo says. And it's kind of a... I kind of like that reply in the sense that it's so like, oh, I know you are, what am I? I like know. he's not ready to engage yeah. with that kind of banter. Yes. He has no... There's he a lack actually, of maturation on display. He, can't, he actually can't justify it. Right. He can't justify the change. Yes. Other than to say, oh yeah, well, I'll show you, buddy. I like the line because it hints so fully at
0: his desire to prove himself and how that has, as we will see, really defined everything in his
1: life. The thing I love about this, Karen, we're to get, So the things that put this kind of lack of maturity on display, and why I find him so terrifying, especially in the first movie, is you know Palpatine was scary, Darth was scary, but there was a control, an absolute icy control. Kylo Ren is immensely powerful, but with a unpredictable with a young person's unpredictability and volatile, and there's something terrifying about you know with with Darth, it's like okay, I'm just not going to. fuck up or say anything to him and I'm not going to get choked. With Kylo Ren, it's like, I don't know. Maybe yeah. he maybe he just cuts my head off because he's right. angry at something else that happened. Mm-hmm. And there is something terrifying about, Absolutely. That, about immense power at the fingertips of someone without any control. Mm-hmm. There's evil and then there's chaos. Yes. That's, that's exactly right. You may try,
0: but you cannot deny the truth that is your family, Tekka says to him. Kylo
1: says. You are so right. And then just, cuts him, mercilessly cuts him down.
0: And the thing that's fascinating about that is that clearly when Kylo says you were so right, he's not just referring to the thing that he is rebelling against, which we will learn is the Solo and Skywalker legacy. He is leaning into the Darth Vader aspect of it. And when he activates that saber to cut down Tekka, that saber fits his character so fully it and really, really fits what exactly what you were just describing, that unpredictability. You know, we'll see in The Last Jedi, he had another one at first, of course. Yeah. He had a blue one when he was training with Luke and he forged this red saber after his fall, after his turn to the dark side with a cracked kyber crystal and what could be more perfect? Yes. The reason that his blade has those vents on the side is because it has to be able to expel yeah. that energy. And in the sounds of the resistance Feature at David Cord says, quote, Kylo Ren's Saber. It's a pretty iconic sound. It's kind of raw. It sounds
1: unstable I love that. the way Kylo is. I, I love that so much. And there's also And I, it I, looks that way. It looks it that dances. way. It dances. And there's like a jaggedness to yes. the blade. I took another thing to it from it as well, which is like, what was Yoda's line? Is the dark side more powerful? No, faster, more seductive. Kylo is just like in a rush. He's Mm -hmm. so angry, wanting to reject all these things that have been put upon him, the training that he has been put through. He wants to reject his family, all these things. And he's just in a rush to do it. He wants to do it quick. And so he built this kind of in a rush, and it looks that way. And it's just amazing visual storytelling. The moment when he just puts his hand up and stops, pose blastable, freezes it right there, and you're just like, fuck.
0: It reminds me of what you were saying about Empire Strikes Back when you realized that Vader and the dinner, the dinner scene yeah. could
1: stop blaster it's fire. It's like, oh no, what, what do we are, do? What are we supposed to do? Yeah, what that? are we supposed to do now? And it's it that moment where you're like, oh, I get it. I get why the Jedi and the Sith and Force users were so feared, so respected and such badass soldiers because you literally just could not kill them.
0: You know what's funny is obviously in terms of the plot of the film. The task is to establish Rey's power. To establish that she will prove equal to Kylo and everyone else who's coming. But really, and you feel it in moments like this, really the trick is to show that Kylo is equal to her. Because we, by the nature of this tale and what it is and who the hero is, are going to be on her side, going to invest in her, going to believe in her. And he has to earn it. And we can Mm. see from the way that he behaves here this lust lust for violence. He seems to take pleasure in torturing Poe for the map information. And he also knows immediately that Finn is the one who helped Poe escape. So he's astute. He'd seen FN-2187 at that time hesitate. He's very, very sharp. Sharp. We can also tell right away that he and Hux are... I love this dynamic. I love it. It's a delight. A comedic delight. It is. They butt heads. They both want to be dad's number one boy. Number one boy! Dad is Snoke in this case. (laughs) Huck says, I won't have you question my methods. And Kylo says, they're obviously skilled at high treason. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps leader Snoke should consider using a clone army. And this is, again, a classic snippet in the film because Huck's comment there about how he had programmed his soldiers from birth gives us essential insight into not only Finn's story, but the First Order's methods at yeah. large, how are they building this new force? There's almost an Unsullied-esque aspect to this of ripping children away from their families and training them to only know tragedy, yeah. one kind of life. But Kylo knew something before all of this, as we will learn over the course of the film. He never learned the Jedi tenet of patience. His meltdown following the BB-8 escape reveal where he has that absolutely uh, hilarious, the droid... Stole I a freighter. That. That's
1: I, I, that is such a <laughs> so f- funny, darkly funny line because <laughs> it's it. like, again, as you noted, he's very sharp. He's very smart, and there's that. Yes, I know I'm young, but don't think that you can just leave shit out. Like mm-hmm. I'm not dumb. The right. droids stole a freighter. <laughs> I'm not an idiot. Hey, stay tuned
0: for the adventures on Canto Bite, motherfucker. <laughs> yes. Okay. But again, in these moments when he's destroying the instrument panel and absolutely terrifying the soldier who has come to give him this information, his lack of composure is really the thing you take away from it more than anything else. And also the fact that his men are afraid of him, terrified of him. You need loyalty to lead. And he has fear.
1: There's that really funny moment when he's tearing up yet another room and the stormtroopers are around the corner and they're just like, ah, we'll take the long way around. I love that.
0: He's we'll just, got a reputation. We'll walk
1: uh, two miles around the, uh, the Star Destroyer Great to get there.
0: SNL bit where Kylo goes as yes. the undercover boss and yes. sees how everyone talks about him.
1: Return reroll after word from our sponsors. Beachwalk Star Wars is presented by State Farm.
0: State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender
1: bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com.
0: And now back to binge mode.
1: Who does Kylo cower before? Snoke. Yes. Titanic in his projection here. Do you think you can, like, on the other side of the Snoke hologram, can you, like, dial it down so he's normal size or would you get pissed? <laughs>
0: I think he'd get pissed. I think that he's in <laughs> firm control of the settings there.
1: It's like, man, you gotta have Snoke 100 feet tall. We can't just, like, I'm hurting my neck having oh my these gosh. conversations with you. Can we just? Like, make you 10 feet tall? Do you have to be 100 feet tall? Or some sort of stadium seating where you can at I least know. go to the back row? I was, like, craning my neck Ridiculous. up to talk to you, Snokey. Ridiculous. Come on, man. We get it.
0: You want to feel like you're powerful.
1: Yeah, we got it. Jeez. Ultimately, the contrast to his impact in The Last Jedi is quite telling compared to, like, the size of his projection yes. here. He calls Luke The Last Jedi when stressing mm. how important it is To Hux and Kylo, that they act. If Skywalker returns, he says, the new Jedi would arise. This is a tease, not only for the end of the film and the next and the entire trilogy as a whole, but ultimately what Ray's role within this story will be. And Hux, of course, has a plan. I love Hux. It is not a surprise plan, considering what they have at hand and considering Star Wars writ large. Use the super weapon. We built this planet weapon. It what just, are we gonna do? Just not use it? And there's, of course, always the super weapons. So the goal here: destroy the Republic, decapitate it, leave the Resistance. Which, for those not super versed in the wider lore, is kind of like an off the books uh-huh. operation. Leave the Resistance vulnerable, without any kind of backing or ability to resupply, and unable to reach. Luke and bring him into the fight. And it's interesting here that the resistance is really the larger threat than the government itself, but that is all part and parcel of the fact that, so, the New Republic is just kind of slow to act, slow to rise Uh to the threat. So, Leia realizing that this threat is real, kind of put together this off-the-books operation that is kind of deniable, has plausible deniability with the New Republic. Snoke says to Kylo, there's been an awakening. Have
0: you felt it? And Kylo says, yes. There's something more, Snoke says. The joy we seek is aboard the Millennium Falcon in the hands of your father, Han Solo. And Kylo's reply is, he means nothing to me. It's
1: very, me she doth protest
0: too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even you, Snoke says, master of the Knights of Ren, have never faced such a test. By the grace of your training, I shall not be seduced, Kylo says. And what is so interesting about this is that Kylo here is speaking about the light side like others speak about the dark side. Yeah, A temptation that he feels, a pull that is real, ever-tugging, that he just has to somehow find the strength to I resist. love that too. It's incredible.
1: It, it reminds me of Harry and Voldemort at the very end, try for some remorse. That's what Kylo is Everything Kylo is doing is to try to not feel the yes, remorse. To not allow himself, because it is his natural inclination yes. still.
0: So who can he talk to about all this? Well, how about Grandpa's melted helmet? Yeah, Grandpa. In whose image he, of course, made his own. Forgive me, he says to Vader's helmet. I feel it again, the pull to the light. Supreme Leader senses it. Show me again the power of the darkness, and I will let nothing stand in our way. Show me, Grandfather and I will finish what you started. Now, a couple things here. One, yes. again, we see that Kylo has the instinct to do the right thing here. Yes, still. He's not lost yet. Two, he doesn't actually understand who Darth Vader was, which absolutely makes sense. It does and it doesn't. It does in a couple ways. One, the, the, the myth and the lore and the way that the Star Wars yes. sequel saga is responding to the weight of myth and lore. Also, the fact that you see what you want to see when you're trying to find yourself. Yes, exactly else. that. But if we want to get reductive, Darth Vader's kids are Luke and Leia. <laughs> yeah. And last time I checked, that's Kylo's uncle and trainer and mom. So if anyone <laughs> should
1: know how the whole Darth Vader tale worked out. At the same time, I always, I find like, I, I, I don't know about your family, but I find that when it comes to like interfamily drama, the first option within the family is always, well, let's not talk about it. And then the second option is, like, you're getting a very my side of the story kind of thing. So for me, it kind of tracks that, like, Luke wouldn't really be like totally chill to be like yeah you know my dad was uh, darth vader that was a thing i found out later yeah. on in life after he had killed like a billion people <laughs> but, but,
0: but kylo knows it. that yeah. that i agree with you but kylo knows that he's his grandfather yes. so he knows yes. who he is yes. and to basically skip over well the way that he the reason he fell in the first place is again greed hubris yeah. a lust for a natural power knowledge all of that yes but also love what yeah. was in his heart, missing his mom, wanting yeah. to protect his wife, having, being attached to somebody who the strictures of the Jedi Order said he couldn't be. And then also where that ended up with him choosing to protect Luke and yeah. to sacrifice himself and thwart the power that was controlling his life and attempt to seek some sort of redemption and atonement. Kylo's being a little selective
1: with his adoration Absolutely. Absolutely. But we can't just get another Vader. You can't just like carbon copy the most iconic villain in all of movies. Can't do that. we need shades, connections, and influence and homage, but also something new, as we've been talking about. Instead of a Death Star, what if bigger? Mm hmm. Death Star, but bigger. What if much bigger? What if planet? <laughs> <laughs> There's that great moment in the Rebel <laughs> briefing where they're like, well, it's like the Death Star. Can we just oh, blow it up again? And they're like, no, here's the Death Star and here's Star Killer Base. And it's like pee versus like a melon. (laughs) Hux's ribbon cutting speech. And by the way, we here at Binge Mode Star Wars, we always love someone who's just going for it. We loved Ian McDermott in the the prequel trilogies for this reason, because this guy is having a ball. Donald Gleason is having himself a fuck. Ball. He's just like, I'm going to turn this shit up to 25. It's working. And then just let it go. Scratching on hinge. <laughs> Today is the end of the Republic. The end of the regime that acquiesces to disorder. At this very moment, in a system far from here, the new Republic lies to the galaxy while secretly supporting the treachery of the loathsome resistance. This fierce machine which you have built upon which we stand will bring an end to the Senate, to the cherished fleet. All the remaining systems will bow to the First Order and will remember this as the last day of the Republic. And he's got that fucking crazy look on his face. He looks like completely unhinged. I love it. Imagine being like, can we get another one? You I'm got ho- another one in you? I'm hoping for the, at some point,
0: the bottle episode anthology where we get the the version of him prepping for this, like oh like Prince Charles prepped for his speech in Wales in episode <laughs> six of season three of The Crown.
1: <laughs> Do you think he was like, I oh, mean, I don't even know how he got it up for this. Did so he just like gets stung by like a bullet ant and was like, no. <laughs>
0: And where is he aiming, Star Killer Base? The Hosnian system, and the display is harrowing. It's ab-
1: absolutely, like, chilling.
0: Oh my God, it's it is chilling. visually astounding when the beam activates and the, the fires melt. It's like a, it looks like a nuclear holocaust. An entire star system wiped out in a blink. And this, folks, is why Jason told me on a recent Ask the Underscore that I couldn't make a rom-com
1: with Hawks. Just right. this old thing. He's a, war, he's a war criminal. It's not what you want. He's a genocidal maniac.
0: Destruction here, truly unlike anything that we have ever seen in Star Wars. I found it,
1: I found myself, well, first of all, in the theater <laughs> on the night, I was like, oh my God, is that Coruscant? Did they kill Coruscant? Right. Because I didn't know. Hosnian Prime. Hosnian Prime. Current home in the
0: New Republic Senate, yes. plus all the surrounding life, gone.
1: And... I was almost like because of the fear on their faces when they're watching it oh, happen. Yeah. And there's absolutely nothing they can do. And I was like, man, is this almost too much? I almost felt like for And I'm still like, yeah. man, this is right on the edge of absolutely cataclysmic violence for Star Wars. It like, is this known is as the
0: Hosnian cataclysm. Yeah. So you're not wrong. Yeah. Starkiller though only does so much. They need BB8 and they need his map to find Luke. And Kylo, a hands-on leader and dark side adept, takes after Vader in this way too. He likes to put his boots on the ground. He likes to get out there directly in the action yeah. himself in their fighters on the grounds on Hoth, Takodana, whatever. Tired of being let down by other people that he doesn't trust, he's going to go find Rey himself. The girl I've heard so much about, he says, classic micromanager Kylo. When we talked about his interrogation of Rey from Rey's perspective. What about from Kylo's? That moment when he removes his mask after she calls Mm. him a creature in a mask is genuinely shocking. Even though, of course, you go into the movie and you know Adam Driver's playing the role. But still, it is shocking that aura melting away. And you just see this sad, confused, angry boy. Yeah, He was 29, so boy might be overstating it. But he does look like a kid. And... It's interesting to think about the fact that he doesn't need to wear the mask like Vader did. Darth Vader needed the mask to stay alive, literally to breathe, right? The breath of life. I love that. I love that. Like, he's literally cosplaying as his hero. He chooses to put himself under it. And supervising sound editor Matthew Wood said in Sounds of the Resistance, the, the mask was not to function like Vader's mask to keep him alive. Kylo Ren's mask was purely for intimidation. And when that intimidation melts away for a second, the look on, I I think it's one of the best moments of acting in the film from Daisy Ridley. Yeah. The look on her face when she sees him for the first time perfectly reflects our response.
1: Fun nugget, speaking of the mask, Adam Driver in the Hyatt Rolling Stone piece said, my dad had a stormtrooper helmet he would put on and chase us around the house with. The people on the dark side were more interesting to me. You can't beat their aesthetic. It's like when we went to Borgin and Burke's. Incredible,
0: same thing.
1: I agree with that. There's something like about that, the dark side aesthetic that is really seductive, and I think that that's really purposeful and interesting. You know, I can take whatever I want. He tells Ray in a in a very charged exchange. And his life is defined by this, what he feels he deserves and feels he didn't get. Here's this person with this immense grievance mm. against the world and this, and against people yeah, that— and the weight it, of two family yeah. And couple that with this immense power to take what he wants. And then it's such a charged exchange. When he tries to use Ray's fears and dreams against her, talking about how lonely she is and what she sees in her dreams— he shares a lot about himself without meaning to. Oh, Han I Solo. He has this great. This is look one on of my, his face. One of my favorite. Moments in Han the Solo. Movie. You feel like he's the father you never had. He would have disappointed you. It's and it's. He does so much with just this kind of weary look on his face, like it communicated everything about his life in one line. Imagine he would being have disappointed this ki- you. Imagine being this kid and hearing all the time. Oh my God, your dad is Han Solo, and having to hear that. And then the reality being so starkly different and not being able to communicate with that anyone. And here he is. And all of that is contained in that one very small extract. Very reminiscent of Albus Severus in The Cursed Child.
0: Yes. Just that weight of that legacy of who your parents are and what you're supposed to be.
1: Don't be afraid, he tells her. I feel it too. Their connection. I love it. And it's strong. And then when she resists him and shuts him out, all of a sudden he is shocked. Yes. For various reasons. One, she's much more powerful than he had even sensed. And two, now he's fucked up the mission because he left without the fucking droid. And what Ray says to him in that moment is the heart of this. She's seen his fears and anxieties. She has read him as he was reading her. You, you're afraid that you will never be as strong as Darth Vader. Woo! Real Harry seeing into Snape's memories during Occulmancy vibes here. Yes, He's modeled himself after someone and something that he cannot measure up to. It hasn't
0: escaped everyone else's gaze that Starkiller base is just, as you said, Death Star, but bigger. And there are some really, really, really high comedy moments here. Self-referential, but maybe too much so. Yeah. We're not really sure how to describe a weapon of this scale. It's another Death Star. I wish that were the case, Major. You know, the the redux elements of the film, as we talked about earlier, are one of the weaker points. But when you're looking at it from the First Order's perspective here, it's kind of just like, how do you keep making the same mistakes? Yeah. How do you keep building these super weapons that have these fatal flaws? And there's, of course, the like weight but science aspect to all of this, as there always is with Star Wars. But... When Han sums it up here with how do we blow it up, there's always a way to do that. There's something about that overtly
1: self-referential nature of the exchange that does feel a little bit refreshing. It's coming, I'll say this, I think that he's the only figure in this story that has that capability because of his standing as someone who's obviously been in the original trilogy and because of the characters, this kind of like wisecracking, world-weary, cynical guy, it only works for him and boy does it work when he says it. And
0: as the resistance fighters are working toward Precinct 47 and the oscillator and everything they're yeah. doing to destabilize the core of the planet, inside of Starkiller itself, before the final confrontation with Kylo and Rey in the snow forest, we get Kylo's showdown with Han. Ugh. And we talk about this a lot. We'll continue to. Star Wars, in many ways, is about the idea of redemption. This is the kind of act that is hard to come back from.
1: It really really Not the it, not the destruction of the Hosnian system. Killing your dad is different. You didn't know all those dads. <laughs>
0: didn't know all those dads. This is This is Kylo's Oedipus moment, of course. Yes. Literally
1: slaying Minus the father. Minus the fucking the mother, which everybody underrates. We always leave that part out. He's I will just say Kylo's very fond of
0: his mother. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Hello. Leave it at that. Remember, he could not kill either of his parents in could the not. cave of evil on Dagobah in the Vision. That's right. I've been waiting for this day for a long time, he says to Han. And the this there is moving on from the thing that he thinks is holding him back, his heart, his family, the ties that bind him to his humanity. Of course, those are the very things, if he is to be redeemed as the saga plays out, that will have to save him. And Han says to him, take off that mask. <sighs> you don't need it. We'll talk about this from Han's perspective in a few minutes. What do you think you'll see if I do, Kylo says, the face of my son. Your son is gone. He was weak and foolish like his father, so I destroyed him. And then he shifts to this real vulnerability. Yeah. Like when Han tells him to come back. him. this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It, it's it's utterly important that they kill this scene, that they land this have scene. Have to they land do. it. You have to crush Han's death. But you also have to establish Kylo as someone we should still be rooting for after he commits this atrocity. Absolutely. It's too late, he says. And there's regret in his voice as he's saying that. No, it's not, Han says. Leave here with me. Come home. We miss you. And Kylo's eyes are watering. We can see the emotion on his face. We can see his heart. This is why he's such a compelling character and villain, moments like that.
1: I'm being torn apart, he says. I want to be free of this pain. I know what I have to do but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. Will you help me? And (sighs) this is a pretty incredible line because of the way the meaning of it can change depending on where you land on Kylo. Right. Either he is wants to be free of this pain and return to the light, return to the arms of his family, or he wants to be free of this pain, as we saw with him in front of Vader's mask, of regret, of feeling the pain of the thing he's done, and he wants to get rid of it, and he's in an almost evil way asking his father's consent to let him murder him. It's absolutely bone-chilling that he really means this and wants to be free of the choice he's made or... That the pain, the thing he needs to do is taking the final step to the dark side, removing the final embers of light, and he hands his lightsaber to his father. And this is, like, incredible shit. Yeah. And it's, again, incredible scene because you're guessing up to the last second. Even when you know, like, I know, right. but they just make it so you really feel like, oh, my God, like, he he might hand him this I think the, the key he might is do that- it he doesn't even know. That's exactly right.
0: That's the key. The key is that it's not just how you feel, it's that you have to believe that he doesn't know either, that yeah. he has not made up his mind. And then when the light, when Starkiller sucks in the sun and the light changes and Kylo
1: is suddenly bathed in the red. Yeah, it's either like, I've gone too far. Now, it, you know, like whatever it is that switches, something switches. Is it there.
0: right? Is it affirmation
1: right. of the thing he already wanted
0: to do? Or is it the reminder of the path that he has to stay on? And when he kills Han, what does he say? Thank you. Ugh. Brutal. And then he goes for Ray. We're not done yet, he says. And he's pounding on I his wound from lo- the blaster
1: shot that Chewie issued. I love that, that choice. <sighs> I don't know where that came from, but I love it because, like, we poke fun sometimes at the Darth Maul survival thing. But there is that thing in Dark Side Users that it's, like, pain, anger. Those are the That's things the that fuel. fuel you. And there he is, like, pounding on this yes. wound in this— Actual physical embodiment of where the dark side of the force comes from. Yeah, building it up, building up his power, trying to trying to generate more of that power. It's really a great moment. I love that so much. It's amazing, and he's
0: dripping blood, dripping yeah. sweat. He's shouting about how Han can't save Ray, screaming at Finn that he's a tra- traitor. The way yeah. he says that, that lightsaber he's so intense. It's, he's he is just incredible. That lightsaber he says to Finn it belongs to me. It's Anakin's in his mind, not Luke's. Yeah. It's his birthright. And his anger is he and Finn and then he and Ray duel is absolutely terrifying to behold. But even here, this connection between Kylo and Ray that will blossom further in The Last Jedi is utterly palpable. You need a teacher, he says. Yeah. I can show you the ways of the Force. It, the Force, she says, and you feel how, even as they're battling all, you potentially to the death, they are so drawn to each other. Yes. Our boy takes a lot of damage here. He does. But he is transported by what he has seen. in Rey, he's animated by meeting her. A threat, an ally, an apprentice, a lover, a secret sibling. He doesn't know yet. Neither do we. But their connection is unambiguous. And the tantalizing setup for him for Last Jedi, in addition to everything with Rey, is this line from Snoke to Hux. He's got to go get Kylo. Why?
1: It is time to complete his training.
0: Concerning. All right. Han, Leia, Chewie. The Falcon. J.J. Abrams in The Story Awakens, The Table Read said, quote, just as a fan of Star Wars, to see them all together was an incredible thrill. Lawrence Kasdan emphasized this. That moment when we all sat in a circle and we saw all these faces, you couldn't believe what you were seeing. And it is the way we feel too when these characters are back in our lives. But before Han and Leia enter, we learn from Ray that the Falcon hasn't flown in years and there's something so fitting about that. The ship grounded, just like the franchise had been now zipping back into life. Luke's training remote, the hollow
1: chessboard, all,
0: all of these of that, familiar yeah. signposts,
1: what better symbol could there be for us? There's that just really iconic moment for this set of movies when Han and Chewie bound through the hatch, blasters out, especially knowing it's this is the farewell to Han movie. Yes. It's chill-inducing. Chewie, we're home. And it's such a perfect, that's such a perfect note to strike. I loved when... <laughs> I love the moment when the hollow chest board accidentally comes on and Chewie is just drawn to it. He, like, that's loves great. the hollow chest. J.J. So Abrams in The Scavenger and the Stormtrooper, a conversation with Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, said, what I'm hoping is that the audience will feel the same kind of rekindled sense of comfort being back in the ship. And I think that's- Definitely. Absolutely Mission accomplished. accomplished. Raised, this is the Millennium Falcon, your Han Solo line is exactly how- a new generation of Star Wars fans feel the thrill of the familiar, but also something new. And there's something, again, so meta about those interactions because it's so much, yes, this character is amazed to be meeting this legend, Han Solo, but it's also a handoff of sorts, Uh, like an introduction and an entree into this world. And it's this feeling of being allowed to sit at at this vaunted table of legends and having your place in it as well. It's wonderful and so inclusive. Hans, I Used to Be Line is our first single from him that something has changed. Things have changed. We don't know what's happened, but it's clear that it's negative in yes. some way. His response to hearing Luke's name from Finn is also gutting. We're interrupted by the Rathtars, but we can sense in that moment that, okay, there's some real pain, some real tragedy, some real trauma yes. in that. And we're, of course, we'll find out how much so over the course of this movie.
0: And- because it's Han, there is much more than just the pain. There is the comedy, the levity, just that light and that life. When the Guavian Death Gang and Contra Club come in on this ship, it just feels like we're we're home
1: again with yeah. Han in these moments. Han, Things can, like here's a small note though: Can we pay people? Just pay them. <laughs> What's it? What's going on with you, my guy? It's oh, Do we need to have a talk about what's I do what's like going when he's on? trying
0: to remember how many times, whether they have the right count for how many times he's fucked them over. It's honestly like what stuff. What was
1: the second? It's kind of like stuff like this is it's cute and it's wonderful and I love it. And it's also like I get why Kylo is like you're a bad dad. You know what I mean? Like never around, doesn't have cash. You get the feeling that Han is the kind of dad who's like, Kylo, you got 20 credits you can lend me until the oh end of the week. Oh, no. I hope that's not true. Moments like him saying, same
0: thing I always do, talk my way out of it, and then Chewie roaring dismissively no. like and Han saying, yes, I do every time. On and on and the list goes. There are so many of those in this movie. Things like when the question, is that even possible, is asked Han saying, I've never asked that question until after I've done it. I All of those it. meta lines flashing back to his history. And when Han is with Moz. We get a hint from Maz about this period of time that we've missed in Han's life. You've been running away from this fight for too long, she says. Han, go home. And what does he say in response? Leia doesn't want to see me. But he cannot wait to see Leia. Yeah,
1: this is an incredible— I mean, this is— You know, as a Star Wars fan, you're waiting for these little interactions and these little moments. The music changes when she gets off the ship. And there is, like, such a love and tenderness, despite everything, despite the interruption of 3PO, that— it just feels so charged. You changed your hair. It says, same jacket. No, new jacket. It's amazing. From Brian Hyatt's Rolling Stone feature, Ford on putting on Han's costume again said, quote, clothes make the man, he says. I could have felt silly to be my age prancing around in high boots in the gun belt with a guy in the hair suit, <sighs> but I didn't. I love the work. I like playing different kinds of characters. What's not to like? It's no big fucking deal. This is what I do. <laughs> what, a, what, I what, can't, what a fucking... He is Han Solo. Oh my God. Incredible. And then Han says to Leia, I saw him. Leia, I saw our son. He was here. Yeah. We know he's their kid already. We knew that. Vader being his grandfather means Luke or Leia is his parent. And since Han's his dad, Leia's his mom, still, it's a gut-wrenching moment. This moment yeah. between two parents who have must feel the loss of their son as some kind of failure on their part. And from the family at the heart of so many struggles against evil for the side of good, it's heart-wrenching to to see that it's come to this. Leia has been
0: leading the charge to find Luke, and she's missing both her brother and her son, Mm -hmm. and she and Han are not together. Han says, I know every time you look at me, you're reminded of him. That's (sighs) tough, man. That's the real shit right there. And Leia says, you think I want to forget him? I want him back. There's nothing more we could have done, Han says. There's too much Vader in him. Leia says, that's why I wanted him to train with Luke. I just never should have sent him away. That's when I lost him. That's when I lost you both. And he says, we both had to deal with it in our way. I went back to the only thing I was ever any good at. She said, we both did. Then they talk about whether he's really gone forever. Han thinks he is. Leia refuses to accept that. She blames Snoke, the pull to the dark side, but says, we can still save him, me, you. And Han says, if Luke couldn't reach him, how could I? And her reply here is just perfect. Luke is a Jedi. You're his father. There is still light in him. I know it. And this is in some ways the eternal yeah. conundrum of Star Wars is can you rescue a lost soul? Can somebody who has done these things find absolution? But getting it here from the parents' perspective is really remarkable They're the people fighting for it because, of course, they are. They can't let go. They can't accept that he is gone. And the way that this question, you think, must have defined years of their life. Years of their life. And knowing that this is the thing now that connects Han and Luke and Leia. This failure, losing Ben Solo, that is now the common thread between them.
1: There's that great line— Again, another meta moment. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter how much we fought, I always hated watching you leave. That's why I did it. I so you'd it. miss me. <laughs> I did miss you. It wasn't all bad, was it? Some of it was good. Perfect. And it's almost like slipping on an old pair of shoes watching these two again. It's like they right back into the rhythms of what the chemistry between those characters are, despite the fact that, like, so much water has gone under the bridge. They're united that now though by what's missing, yes. not what's actually here. I, if you see our son, bring him home, she Oof. tells him. Carrie Fisher in the story awakens the table read, says, Harrison and Mark and myself in a room together doing this again. I mean, you know, you think, really? who to thunk it? It's great. And united with us as our bridges to the past, a moment like Hans' is-there-a-garbage-shoot-a-trash-compactor <laughs> line about what to do with phasma is a great example. And again, another example of the kind of of meta in joke and easter egg that only he can really deliver
0: absolutely but it's not just humor again he's the in many ways the heartbeat of this film and his death yeah. is certainly the emotional this center this is the of han it. movie absolutely we don't know it at the time but when he and leia part there and he says we'll meet back here To Chewie, those are his goodbyes. That's crazy. With those two people. And you don't know that till later. You're not able to reflect on that till later. His final moments ultimately are with his son, with Ben, with Kylo, whom he believes that he has failed and who thinks he has failed him. And maybe you think Han should have gone out fighting. Han should have gone out and battle out in the air, in the Falcon. But to us, this just feels like such a quietly fitting end for Han Solo. This rogue, this scoundrel, so often defined by his humor and his charm and his risk and the action that he was taking, standing still, yeah. standing with family. And we know from Sola what family meant to Han, what his relationship with Kira meant to him, how beneath his gruff exterior, he longed for tribe family. What's the difference, as Tobias Beckett would say? He longed for those connections. And he didn't believe in the Force when we first met him. And now he's staring down the reality of what it can do to people. In his own son's face, and when Kylo asks him for his help, he says what any parent who wants to build that connection would. Yes, anything. All he wants to do is save his family. And the last thing that he does as the saber is pierced him oh, before he falls oh, is reach out with his hand great, and touch his son's face.
1: It is absolutely devastating. And then you're... you're, It's a Chewie roar gutter. Ah! Uh, that is, it's almost Your grief too much. And it's honestly like reflected in Chewie because it's like, man, this is the power of movie making and movie storytelling is like the anguish of Chewie, who is, as Harrison would say, a guy in a hair suit.
0: <laughs> it
1: crushes you. Yes.
0: And then the way that Leia can feel it, can yeah. feel that Han is gone through the force. And you would think, you would assume that she
1: can also feel who did it. Yeah, that must be.
0: Almost what is just much pain? Terrible moment of grief and sorrow. Devastating. Let's talk about Finn and Poe, and of course, the droids, our dude, BB8. We've obviously talked about a lot of the plot points that they're involved in already. So rather than rehashing it, we'll share some of our some of our feelings about these new characters and the impact that they made.
1: I think the introduction of Finn and the reveal that the new order is staffing up, recruiting, as it were. Their soldiers, literally from child conscripts, I think adds another element of barbarity and true evil to this organization. And I think it's a testament to like Finn's moral character, despite who knows what this training program is like, the programming, the, mm-hmm. con- you know, the violence, the constant violence, that even he is shocked by the things that he's seeing. It shocks the conscience. And I think that that's, yes. it, that's the core of his character. This, we can be the thing we want to be. We don't have to be the thing that the world is trying to make us into. Yes.
0: And I love that, especially in the Stormtrooper mold, because— yeah. You know, we've talked about and and discussing one of the things we like about the Clone Wars television series is that you get to see how the clone soldiers also had personalities and individual tendencies. But Mm -hmm. here, this is a real rejection of the idea that you have a Star Wars fans to kind of just paint this whole group of people with one brush. And Finn is rebelling against that sameness and that uniformity and saying, I'm a person. I am an individual. I can make choices. And I think watching him throughout the film, the thing that is driving that choice changes, but in a way that ultimately feels very true to life when you have freedom and you have the chance to yeah. go out and live your life and make decisions, meet new people, move from point A to point B when you want, you're going to be driven by something that you're responding to in the context of the moment. It's fear at first. It's it, yeah. you have to get away. I will
1: rescue I, you, Poe, but it's You not, don't understand what's coming. Right. We got to get out of here. It's not
0: purely noble yes. the rescue. It's brave, Absolutely, of course, yeah. but it's self-interested as he admits. I, and I love that he
1: admits that. I love that, too. There's that thing that we talk about sometimes where it's like, you know, sometimes what makes the hero the hero is the fact that they just don't understand what they're facing. They don't know. Finn knows too well. He knows all too well. He's seen it. He's seen the super weapon. He sees the way the stormtroopers treat normal people. He's seen villages bombed and totally destroyed. And from his perspective, this machine is coming. It's going to roll over you. You don't you actually don't get it. You don't understand what I've seen. I don't have the power of language to convey to you the horrors that I've seen. Right. And we get that from him on Takodana when everybody's moving
0: in one direction and he wants to get away. He needs to get away. And he wants them to understand, too, that they need to get away. And it's such an interesting moment in the film because it's on the heels of him, just this dynamo of, Charisma. Yeah. He has such an instant connection with Ray. He has such an instant connection with Poe. There's real humor. The way that he's trying to get BB 8, again, tough look for our guy here, but yeah. trying to get BB 8 to basically help him <laughs> lie to Ray <laughs> about who a very he is. Tough moment. <laughs> impersonating a resistance officer because he's in Poe's yeah. leather jacket. And then the way that the motivation shifts, again, from fear, self preservation to. Fighting for Ray, protecting Ray because he is in love with her. And that starts to become very clear over the course of this film. Yes. And the thing that the only thing stronger than his desire to get away, to escape, to be safe, to live a new life and build a new life is his desire to make sure she's okay. And the willingness to walk back in to do the exact opposite of the thing he was saying before not only you're not only not escaping the first yeah. order you're going that's, into the belly of the his beast character on turns Killer. on that
1: that's that's really where you know we talk so much about redemption with star wars but that's where he redeems himself when he allows his fear to turn into anger to turn into righteous anger to get back at the people who have committed so many atrocities in the universe to really fight back for the first time And he's also, I think, a really interesting avatar for the
0: fans because there are two moments in the film where he gets to use the lightsaber to hold it, to activate it, to wield it. The battle at Takodana, and then, of course, the snow forest duel with Kylo on Starkiller Base. That great line
1: from Maz, I need a weapon, you have one. You have
0: one, exactly. And the sheer awe of having that in your hand. And the other thing that I love about it, we, we return to this idea a lot, is like, it's a Jedi weapon, but he's not a Jedi and he's still able to wield it. Yeah. And believing in the Force, believing in the power of you as just a person in the world to stand up and fight and make a difference. Like you mentioned that Dumbledore idea earlier, it is that just fight and fight and yeah. fight again idea. And he's willing to do
1: that because Rey is somebody who has made him believe that it's worth trying. And it- I also love how he rises to other people's example, which I think, you know, really tracks with this character who is, again, experienced the terrifying violence of the First Order from within, that it's when he sees people around him fighting back and not just fighting back, but fighting back in a way that's making a difference, that the rage he feels is suddenly given An outlet where he can fight back,
0: and you see it when he directs it at someone like Phasma. Yeah, that it's actually it's almost alarming.
1: Yeah, it is. He's there is a ferociousness there that is really like whoa.
0: Yes, but then the tenderness that he deploys when in the the humor again, like why why are you doing that with your chin? I'm trying to form a plan. He just wants to find Rey no matter what. And I love this quote from John Boyega in Blueprint of a Battle. He said, "Having a lightsaber in my hand was surreal, and of course it would be." And he also has a great bit in there where he's talking about how scary it was to do those scenes with Adam Driver because he's quote, so intense with that swing. (laughs) I mean, he really like hauls off. Amazing. Very fond of Finn. How about Poe? Obviously the Poe-Finn relationship and that bromance, or romance if you ship it, is one of the real centers of the film. It is so easy to root for them as characters and to invest in them even though Poe, despite Oscar Isaacs, I think relative stardom and fame for the new cast of characters at that point in 2015, Poe is barely in the movie. He will be a much more meaningful part moving forward. We only get a a couple snippets of him.
1: You know, we know he loves BB-8. And man, does he come in with a freaking fastball. The moment when you're like, oh, this is different. I like this. I want to see more of this is he's brought before Kylo after the massacre at the village. And of course, like his tenderness with BB-8 is immediately winning. But then there's that moment he's brought before Kylo. He's dropped on his knees. And then he has that. I talk first. You talk first. I love that. And it's just all of a sudden like, okay. I like this guy. And also in the
0: interrogation, when Kylo says "comfortable," and he says
1: "not really," <laughs> no, <it's> like <laughs> he's very winning. Yeah, that that kind of like gallows humor, like laugh in the face of despair thing. Yes, considering this is a story with like an immense amount of despair, is just there's something really great about that. For he's kind of like the Han Solo of this group in a yeah. lot of ways. Not necessarily a scoundrel in the same way. But in the way that he's, you can tell he's seen a lot of stuff and he's quick with a comeback when he's faced with a kind of like seemingly no way out situation. Yes,
0: passing the leather jacket from Poe to Finn is very much a visual signifier that they're both a little bit Han-y, but Poe certainly has that that thirst and spirit for adventure. And then you couple that with his... Full commitment to yes. the fight, and the fact that you know that this is a guy who, if you give him the mission, is gonna find a way to get it done no matter what. Like, uh, you see what the mission means to him, you see what BB almost means too to him. committed.
1: So, like, when you go to the when you fast forward to Last Jedi, almost too committed to the cause, like, uh, reckless right. to almost too swashbuckling, too reckless, certainly headstrong. Yes, which. Is a pattern, certainly with Star Wars characters. And, yeah. you know,
0: you mentioned the Han comp, but there's also, and not in the he's chosen one 2.0 way, but there's a Luke comp too. Mm-hmm. Like, Poe is in the Luke seat in the X-Wing, absolutely. firing the Friends fatal with,
1: shot. Partners with a
0: droid. Might as well to be you. a womp rat. Yes, yeah. partner with a droid. Can we talk about the droid? Yeah, we're, we're We're running long, so we got to fast forward here, but we have to spend a few minutes talking about BB-8, the instant phenomenon. Like, so many other characters in this movie has to bridge this gap. He's part of this family, 3PO and R2, but also has to establish his own identity yeah. immediately. J.J. J. Abrams in Building BB-8 said, we were working on this list of things we knew we wanted in this movie, and we wanted a droid that had a strong personality and a big role in the film. So BB-8 is actually elemental to building this movie, and you can hear about how they landed on the design because J.J. J.
1: Abrams sketched it out on a post-it And note. it's a wonderful design, too, not just from a purely utilitarian sense. He's so much more mobile. He can do so many more things. He can traverse lots of different kinds of terrain. But that he's able to convey so many more emotions with the way he's configured than even R2 could. Like, we, oh know, we've talked to so many yeah. times about how, listen, R2, incredible personality, limited arsenal of physical gestures, BB-8, smashes it. He can sink his head in despair. He can nod his head. He can, like, jump up and down. He's got uh, so many more things he can the, do. It's a
0: constellation of responses yeah. that completely mimics human behavior. The the moment when he thinks Poe is dead.
1: and then his, his head sinks, sinks And it's just
0: wrenching. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, the, the thumbs up with wonderful. the lighter.
1: Like, he's just like, I'm here, bro. Let's, like, bro out. It's just he's so a, fucking great. He's... So vibrant and alive, and you know where R two was like kind of spunky and like kind of like get out of my way. I'm just gonna do it. BB eight is there's a playfulness to BB eight yes. that is that is intrinsic to his. Personality. He's happy. He's yeah. joyful, and it, you do get that moment where just
0: you see BB eight roll up to R two. Oh my god! And yeah. you realize how small, small. He's, like, oh, how tiny tiny he is. Tiny boy. The moment. I mean, BB-8 is, like, legitimately my favorite character. I can't, I could talk about him for three hours, but the moment when Han is, like, move ball is so funny. <laughs> and then you start to think, oh, well, how do they move the ball? And, yeah, you know, the, the, the way that they designed this, like, actually built it for the set. Yeah. And things like, there's a, there's a version of it that's a puppet that they pu- use puppeteers for. There's... One they call the Wiggler. There are two trikes. It's just fascinating. They right. had actual actors, Ben Schwartz and Bill Hader, read dialogue, voice work. What a scam! It's incredible. what an incredible
1: scam. I absolutely respect it, and I am jealous of it. Be in Star Wars, do the voice of a droid. It's amazing. In fucking incredible, Schwartz and Hader. Fucking, I respect legends. the hustle. And you know, you have
0: again, like three PO with this red arm marking the passage of time. Yeah. R2 in sleep mode, and it's so, it is, yeah, if you is take a moment is. to think about that, he is depressed since Luke went away. And you can almost forgive the fact that you're just in another Star Wars movie where a droid is housing some sort of essential information, and J.J. Abrams and Arndt have both given that basically R2 downloaded the archives of the Empire back when he plugged in on the Death Star, so that's how he has this, which is okay. But, <laughs> <laughs> that adjacency between those yeah. two classics. Again, the first two Star Wars characters that we ever meet. And then this little, ro- literally rolling dynamo of energy and joy is just really one of the heartbeats of the film. BB-8, protect him at all yeah, costs! I love it. Jason! Yeah! You need a teacher. I do. I can show you the ways of the Force. I'm into it. But first, I need you to show me something. Yeah, you got it. The way to history. So please, gather the Padawan learners, head to the Jedi Temple, Not, you know, Luke's old school where everyone got slaughtered. Teach us everything we need to know about the Battle of Jakku.
1: Most of this information comes from the last book of Chuck Wendig's Aftermath Trilogy, which tells you what happened in the months and weeks after the Battle of Endor. So the Battle of Jakku. The Emperor was powerful, ruthlessly cunning. Very intelligent, loved the opera, fond of gowns. Enjoyed unlimited power. Loved nothing more than (laughs) no limits on his power. His one glaring weakness, unfortunately, was his arrogance. The top three rebel targets in the Galactic Civil War were, in some order, himself, Darth Vader, and the Death Star. So when the Emperor decided to hang out on Death Star 2, a.k.a. the Deuce, (laughs) (laughs) to oversee its construction. Then had Darth meet him there with Luke. Well, he really just made it too easy, didn't he? When the Battle of Endor was over, the Emperor and Darth were dead and the deuce was blown to smithereens. The Empire was effectively finished. But though the Empire ceased to exist as a threat to dominate the galaxy, it was still a deadly military force and many of its commanders were ready to continue the fight, dreaming, perhaps, that they themselves could become Emperor. So the war dragged on. It wasn't until the Battle of Jakku, the Empire's last stand, one year and four days after the Battle of Endor, that the conflict was truly decided. The battle, a devastating defeat for the Empire, was actually Palpatine's last will and testament, his contingency plan. Mm -hmm. See, Palpatine could not stand the thought of his Empire living on after him, controlled by someone else, someone less worthy of his creation. Therefore. The Emperor decided that should he pass on the Empire and as many of its enemies as possible should be destroyed all in one stroke. The Emperor handpicked Admiral Gallius Rax to carry out this mission. Palpatine had been preparing Rax for this eventuality since the Admiral was a boy. After the defeat at Endor, Rax, unbeknownst to the rest of the Imperial High Command, put this plan into motion. With the Ravager, the Empire's last superstar destroyer under his command— Rax consolidated the imperial military, pushed aside his rival, Admiral Ray Sloan, who he had used as a pawn to instigate fake peace talks to buy some time, and declared himself counselor to the empire, essentially the new emperor in all but title. Then he moved the imperial forces to Jakku in preparation for the battle. Now, though the plan had many, 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 many moving parts. Too many. That's my note on the plan. Many. Too many. It was, in essence, extremely simple. Commit all Imperial forces to Jakku, lure the Republic into a decisive battle there, then obliterate the planet and kill everyone. Mm -hmm. But Rax also had something in mind, which the Emperor did not intend. He planned to take a chosen few, untainted by failure, with him, off Jakku. Using star maps of the unknown regions, Rax and his acolytes would then travel beyond the reach of the new Republic, rearm and rebuild, becoming a new organization. More on that in a bit. Rax stationed the fleet in a tight defensive formation around the planet, protecting the ground troops below. Jeku's punishing desert environment, according to Rax's public pronouncements, would uh, temper the steel, forge the stormtroopers into a harder, stronger, invincible fighting force. Mm-hmm. In actuality, just as Rax and the Emperor intended, the long weeks of drudgery and hardship under the incessant Jakku sun weakened the military's resolve and discipline. Atrocities were committed, including the formation of death squads made up of child soldiers. Not what you want. Things got bad very quickly. The New Republic eventually discovered the Imperial presence in and around Jakku. And after much deliberation and politicking, it was not an A to B, believe me, the New Republic mobilized its fleet. Though the rebels had won the galaxy, Supplies were still hard to come by. The Imperial rump state still controlled the major shipbuilding planets, Kuat Driveyards among them. It was hoped that some of the Imperial star destroyers could be boarded and taken for the new Republic. The fleet was commanded by veteran leader and all-around delicious guy, <laughs> <laughs> Admiral Ackbar.
0: It's a trap!
1: It is. It's a crab trap. You're in it. <laughs> Next stop, the frying pan. Oh, no. I Actually, I love Admiral Akbar. I'd eat one of his lieutenants, not him. <laughs> Ground forces were commanded by Lieutenant General Brockway. They faced off against Grand Moff Rand in charge of the Imperial fleet and General Borum in charge of the ground troops. For the first time in a major battle, the Republic fleet outnumbered the Imperial fleet. But Rax had his ships deployed in an ingenious defensive formation with Star Destroyers packed tightly in front of the Ravager. These ships would open up gaps in the line, allowing the Ravager to unleash barrages at the Republic fleet. Numerous Republic ships were taken down in this manner. Then the Star Destroyers would close the gap, allowing the Ravager to cycle its weapons, continuing the sequence. Akbar's tactics managed to shrink the perimeter of the Imperial formation, but the Republic just could not break through. When one of the Imperial commanders lost his nerve, ramming his vessel into a Republic ship, a hole in the formation opened, weakening the line. Akbar pounced. The Concord, commanded by Commodore Krista Agati, locked its tractor beam onto the Ravager, pulling it out of position and immobilizing it. Other Republic ships swept in, attacking the Ravager's engines, sending the ship into a death spiral." Tractor beamed together, the Ravager and the Concorde crashed into Jakku. Nearly thirty years later, Ray would fly the Millennium Falcon through the wreckage of the Ravager. The tide of the battle turned. Soon after the new Republic forces boarded the Star Destroyer Inflictor. Great names for Wonderful. these. Very like Chuck Rhodes names.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I think Wendy's really the Ravager. She
1: really is, and the Inflictor. <laughs> the Dominator, the Skin Searer. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Inflictor's captain scuttled her rather than risk her capture, and she too crashed in Jakku. On the planet, the Imperial army already pushed back in certain locations, began to crumble after the crash of the Ravager. Meanwhile, as the battle raged, Rax traveled to Palpatine's observatory. He had seeded numerous observatories across the galaxy. Palpatine's observatory to trigger the destruction of the planet with him were the people he intended to take to the unknown regions. Commandant Brendol Hux, his son Armitage, who we know as General mm-hmm. Hux, and a cadre of his most lethal and devoted child soldiers, the future of the First Order Stormtrooper Corps. And one person who he definitely did not intend to take with him, Rax. Soon hurled Palpatine jock sniffer, and though not actually a Sith, (laughs) Sith cultist Yupei Tashu into a borehole leading to the planetary core. Yupei at the time was wearing a Sith mask and holding a Sith holocron. The energies unleashed by their destruction rocked the planet, triggering a chain reaction that would, if unchecked, crack Jakku's mantle and tear the planet apart, killing everyone unlucky enough to be around.
0: Always comes back to a holocron.
1: Always comes back to a holocron, folks. Poor Upe. he thought they were about to do something really cool and then <laughs> got pushed into a hole. Tough break for Upe. But Rax's rival, Ray Sloan, had tracked him to the observatory as well, along with an assortment of unlikely allies, including rebel fighter ace Nora Wexley, mother of Snap Wexley from The Force Awakens. Though naturally antagonist, Admiral Sloan had managed to convince Wexley that Rax was the mortal threat and they should focus on him. At the observatory... Ray Shotrax, who in his dying moments told Sloane about the contingency plan, the map to the unknown regions, and the plan to go there and start everything all over. Sloane sealed the borehole and stopped the planetary holocaust. After briefly considering surrendering to the New Republic, she left the planet along with Hux and the child soldiers and made for the unknown regions, where she would later become one of the First Order's initial leaders. The defeat at Jakku, shattered the empire once and for all. The Galactic Concordance was signed soon after ending the Galactic Civil War legally, but mop-up operations on Jakku went on for months as many Imperials refused to surrender. With so much military hardware just laying around, Jakku became a black market hub. The planet, essentially unpopulated before the battle, became a boomtown for scavengers. And you have to imagine Ray's parents could have been among them, they flocked to the planet and gangster Nima the Hutt took control of the illicit trade and Nima Outpost is named for her. Nima
0: the Hutt, tough cookie.
1: She's tough. Tough cookie. None of the huts are really pushovers.
0: Well, again, Zero got shot and killed by his he was a crooning kid. girlfriend <laughs> who he thought kid. was going to help him steal a- He was immature. Ledger from his
1: father's tomb, so. <laughs> Why are you putting ledgers in tombs, people? These are reasonable questions, too. Mal? Yeah. I see your eyes. You already know the truth. <laughs> so let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Lightning, Red, you go first.
0: Number one. Let's start at the end on Star Killer Base. Now we don't technically, definitively, a hundred percent, without a doubt know which planet the First Order turned oh, into we a super weapon. We can suspect. Yes. So we don't know much about its history beyond the fact that it was rich in Kyber. The material used by the Jedi to make lights... <laughs> <laughs> to make lightsabers. And by the Empire to fuel the Death Star laser. However, fans have believed for years... The Starkiller base is actually Ilum, a planet that we have, of course, discussed before on this podcast in the Clone Wars season five episode, The Gathering. Jason, your favorite episode? One of your favorite I sw- episodes. I just it's love there. it.
1: Because, like, listen, unlike some other people here, I love Padawans. I love the, the younglings. <laughs> listen,
0: that's that's <laughs> not I would protect fair. them. I also would prefer to protect them unless my choice is them or maybe Yoda. That's all. Okay. Okay. The Jedi Padawans <laughs> in that episode travel to Ilum, as Jason outlined yeah. for you in his. Jedi Temple on Kyber crystals in the Rogue One podcast. And there they find the Kyber crystals that they're going to use to build their first lightsabers. Ilum was an icy planet, just like Starkiller Base. It was the same size, and it was, of course, rich in Kyber. Kyber! (laughs) And without giving too much about the plot away, there are additional hints in the new video game, Jedi Fallen Order, that seem to all but confirm that Ilum and Starkiller Base are one and the same. Moreover, Starkiller is a name known to Star Wars diehards mm-hmm. for another reason. Yep. In a number of drafts for the original Star Wars script, Luke's last name was Starkiller instead of Skywalker. In the making of Star Wars, <laughs> this is too much, <laughs> George Lucas explained that he made the change after filming had already begun because, quote, I felt a lot of people were confusing him with someone like, Charles Manson.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. What what, can I, George? (laughs) What in the movie would make people feel like Mark Hamill is playing Charles Manson? Here's the thing: you have to remember two other things. One, they hated it.
0: (laughs) When people first saw R two, they hated hated them. And people really, really, really want Han to be a b- bloodthirsty, cold-blooded killer. So it's all of a piece. The quote concludes it had very unpleasant connotations. In other words, he didn't want people to think that Luke literally killed the celebrity kind of stars. Mark Hamill tweeted in 2015 that he'd even played Luke for a bit as Luke Starkiller and that he'd filmed the I'm Luke Skywalker, I'm here to rescue you scene with the alternate last name instead. Other sources dispute that claim, saying that the Death Star scenes hadn't been filmed yet when Lucas made the change. But either way, this little bit of series lore eventually carried forward to the newest trilogy when deciding what to call the newest and biggest weapon of them all.
1: It's definitely Illum. It's tragic. It's actually tragic. Number two, from star killers to star injurers, early into filming, Harrison Ford lost an encounter with his old ship, delaying production by a few weeks as a result. Quoting from that 2015 Rolling Stone feature, the door of the Falcon, quote, slammed down on him, pinning him to the floor and badly breaking his leg. I do see the irony in it, says Ford. Understandably, it took him a while. His ankle went to a 90-degree angle, recalls Abrams, (laughs) who fractured a vertebrae trying to lift the door (laughs) off his star and then spent months (laughs) concealing his own injury from the cast and crew. Real... Horrid stuff, but at least it'd be getting a laser sword to the gut before being thrown off a tower Catwalk.
0: My goodness. Abrams fractured a vertebrae trying to lift
1: the door? Well, I mean— He's the first one to the door? I would be if I saw yeah, Harrison I was Ford the director. pinned under a door. I might call, like, slight BS on this. How far—like, <laughs> was he right there? He was, like, on set right there, 10 feet away? I don't know. Man, this is Abrams. What it's good myth-making, though, I like and it. that's what it's all about.
0: I love it. Number three. Most behind-the-scenes stories about The Force Awakens production don't involve freak accidental injuries, thankfully. I love this. One fun example of a, again, non-horrifying injury, Nugget. All the stealthy cameos in the film. We've talked about some of these before, including Bill Hader and Ben Schwartz's roles in creating BB-8's voice. And here are just some of the many, many more notable examples. Ewan McGregor. it's great. My husband. Speaks a line in this film during Ray's lightsaber vision sequence That's when great. Obi-Wan says her name. Ray, these are your first steps. Daniel Craig, as noted, is the uncredited stormtrooper who lets Ray free after she figures out how to use the Jedi mind trick against him. Simon Pegg plays Unker Plutt, who obviously looks, the creature yes. costume looks nothing like the actor. You can find online funny shots of him without the head on the costume. Looks like a little pinprick in that big body. Billy Lord, Carrie Fisher's daughter, played a resistance stuff. fighter. This is wonderful. The actors who make up Kanja Club, Yayan Ruhian, Iko Weiss, Cheshep Arif Rahman, are well known for their work in the raid. And a bunch I love the of actors with thrones connections. Yes! Briefly left Westeros for a galaxy far, far away. There is Max Sydow, AKA The Three Eyed Raven, who gives Poe the map at the beginning of the film. Love my guy. Tough to have to relegate this to cameo status when it was. Build heavily in advance yes. as primary casting, but Gwendolyn Christie, who played Brienne, of course, and then Captain Phasma here barely has any screen time. Thomas Brody Sangster, aka Jojen.
1: <laughs> Looking great.
0: Looking great. Glad to see him out of the cold and indoors. <laughs> is a first order officer, not talking about seeing the snow cover anyone's bones. And Jessica Henwick, who played Namiria Sand, mm, hello. Is a fighter pilot. Also. Miltos Uralimu is a patron at Maz's Cafe. Sirio Pharrell lives. He's back! After all, I never doubted it. And last but not least, Mark Stanley, last seen holding the gate as Granite Castle Black. Hold the gate. Hold the gate. Plays a hooded knight of Wren.
1: Perhaps make another appearance in The Rise of Skywalker later this week. Number four. What about some actual characters in the film? Beyond the actors who play them, Max von Sydow plays Lor Santeca. And though the old friend of the Resistance dies within minutes in this film, he lived a wonderful and courageous life before then. A human male born in the late days of the old Republic lore became an adherent to Jedi teachings during the Clone Wars, despite not possessing any recognizable connection to the Force. He believed in the Order's ideals and respected its dealings during the Clone Wars, and he remained steadfast even after Order 66 wiped out most of the Jedi. During the Imperial era, Lord took it upon himself to unearth much of the Jedi's history that the Empire had sought to cover up, and he used his job as an explorer to travel the galaxy, searching for information about their past. Despite his lack of Force sensitivity, he became a go-to resource for people seeking information about the Force and the Jedi. Like a Star Wars Wikipedia, in-world Wikipedia. After the fall of the Empire and the creation of the New Republic, Lore continued working as an information agent supplying the government with knowledge of far-flung worlds and secret Jedi lore that had all but disappeared due to the Empire's brutal deletions. Even before Jakku, he'd worked with Leia and Poe. Unfortunately, his last mission for them ended with his death at the hands of a family friend, Ben Solo. Look how old you've become. <laughs> Calm
0: down, man. <laughs> Number five. Like Lore, San Tekka, are also new and a lot more destructive than a simple explorer. J.J. Abrams wanted the Wrath Tars not fully scary, but, quote, family scary, according to a director's commentary. And he succeeded in the madcap interlude on the cargo ship that sees two rival gangs, Han, Chewie, Rey, Finn, and BB-8, running for their lives. Wrath Tars hail from a toxic swamp planet called Tuan Kede. And there are some in-universe hints that they share common ancestry with the Sarlacc! So it makes sense that they're bloodthirsty creatures among the most dangerous in the galaxy. And every successive bit of information you learn about their background underscores just how well they operate as vicious hunters. For instance, despite their non-sentience and small brain, Rathtars work in groups. And in fact, there's evidence that they're smarter when in close proximity with other Rathtars. They also tend to hunt in packs, working together and using howls at a frequency beyond human hearing to communicate and home in on their mutual prey. Like the sarlacc, they have long, dexterous tentacles that Jason wants to fry up and snack mm. on, and a mouth full of dagger sharp teeth. Even better than the sarlacc, they're mobile, surprisingly quick when in pursuit of a meal. Though it's somewhat adorable that they move by curling into a ball and rolling right. forward, BB-8 style. Sonic the Hedgehogian. That'll be the last time we ever compare Rathars to BB-8. Yeah. Sonic, I like that. The most frightening fact of all might be that Rathars reproduce by fission, meaning. One Tar can divide into two identical Ratthtars so herds can grow in size with alarming speed when left unchecked. Alas, we see both in the creature's bio and its debut appearance on screen in The Force Awakens. It's a lot safer to leave them unchecked than to try to rein them in, and oftentimes end up eaten in the process.
1: Number six. One character who isn't new, however, C-3PO. You may not have recognized me with my red arm, (laughs) who in typical C-3PO fashion enters the movie by interrupting a tender moment (laughs) between Leia and Han, saying that exact line. You probably didn't recognize me because of my red arm, he says. Well, Well, I recognize you because you're fucking cockblock. You dumbass. Shut up. Why is he still around? Why are you keeping him around? (laughs) Leave him on the base. That's fine. Stay in the fucking headquarters. Isaac has poisoned your soul.
0: I, I mean, Isaac famously anti three no, PL. Justice is famously anti Ron Weasley. Has here's the thing about no,
1: here. I'm not. Here's the thing about three PL. He is a good three po has a good heart, and the thing is, he is very annoying. But he's a little bit of a bully, push, which I don't like. He's but a other little than bit that. of a bully, but the thing is, he's also kind of a pushover. You know what I mean? Like he's a bully, but then you're like, see three PL, shut the fuck up, and he's like, okay, you know. <laughs> He's a know-it-all, and it's tough. Well, you're going to cry he's when he has his memory wiped and he has to sacrifice himself or
0: whatever's going to happen in Rise of Skywalker based on that heart-wrenching I'm gonna, sequence I'm in gonna the trailer. Die,
1: I'm going to cry if any of the fathers die in that charge on the ship, oh my in the God. hull of the ship. Anyway, in Marvel Comics Star Wars C-3PO number one from James Robinson and Tony Harris, we learn the backstory behind the protocol droid's new appendage lowest selling Star Wars issue in comic bookish. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know <laughs> but it seems like it. When Admiral Akbar was kidnapped, the resistance captured a first order droid named OMR1 or Omri, believing he knew where Akbar was being kept. It all the comes ship back that. Carrying Omri, 3PO and others crashed, though killing all non-droids on board. And as the handful of surviving droids made their way back towards civilization on foot, they bonded despite the differences in who they served. After some initial distaste, 3PO and Omri got along particularly well because they were both protocol droids. They commiserated over the tragedy of memory wipes for their kind and discussed the flashes of pre wipe memories they occasionally remembered wisps of a past long forgotten. When a gang of tentacled beasts attacked the droids, some were killed and 3PO would have joined them if not for Omri pulling him free of the creature's grasp. 3PO lost an arm but kept his life. Their new friendship was strengthened. They expressed a desire to be on the same side in the war, but fate did not cooperate. An acid rainstorm hit the area soon after, and the two droids knew they wouldn't last long in the downpour. Omri divulged Akbar's location to ThreePO, then walked through the rain toward a ship he could use to signal the resistance and summon them to rescue Threepio before his parts melted away. Boy. As the rain pelted Omri's body, killing the droid, his true red color was revealed, and he successfully contacted Poe Dameron to pick up Threepio. That body... All but disappeared, leaving only one arm, which 3PO would then adopt in memory of his friend behind. Although he was Tragic. like, I gotta get a new arm. I gotta get my own arm back in this movie. Well, it's, a, it's a brief tribute. Yeah, it's a brief <laughs> 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 Number seven. In addition to
0: 3PO's red arm, another big question arises from this movie, thanks to a tease from a character within it. When Han asked Maz where she found Luke's lightsaber, as you heard us reference earlier, yes. formerly Anakin's lightsaber, which was last seen, of course, falling from Luke's grasp on Bespin at the end of *Empire Strikes Back*. Maz slyly replies, "A good question for another time." Which is also what we say when we run out of time to prep binge mm-hmm. mode. Well, <laughs> we still don't know the answer. No Marvel comic has focused on the question, but it's possible that Episode Nine, *The Rise of Skywalker*, could be that another time. Because J.J. Abrams is, of course, back in the director's cockpit and he seemed to have more he wanted to say about the saber in episode Mm. seven. One deleted scene had Maz, who in some drafts traveled back to the Resistance base following the skirmish on Takodana, handing Leia her brother's old lightsaber. And that kernel of an idea could appear again in Rise of Skywalker because we've already seen Leia holding a lightsaber in the trailer as Abrams uses leftover footage from Force Awakens to give Carrie Fisher screen time in the new film. Plus, Some sketches of The Force Awakens had the lightsaber playing an important role in the very first scene. In one version, as Mark Hamill told The Sun, the movie would have opened with Luke's severed hand still holding the lightsaber, flying through space and burning up as it entered the atmosphere of Jakku. Gnarly. Wow. But the lightsaber would continue to fall until it reached the planet's surface and was picked up by an unidentified hand. Now, that scene sounds pretty wild. A severed hand floating through space. But... Whether it might have played exactly that way or not, Abrams clearly has more ideas to explore about this crucial lightsaber's historic trajectory.
1: Let's hope we learn more in episode nine. Number eight. Finally, a couple more items for our guy J.J. Abrams, who gave plenty of thought to every item that appears on screen. For instance, when Kylo takes off his helmet and places it on what looks like a table of ashes, well, J.J. said those are actually meant to be ashes. More specifically, Abrams told Entertainment Weekly, quote, The backstory is that the table has the ashes of the enemies he's killed. That's normal. It's warm and cuddly and wonderful. chill
0: and normal and not
1: at all completely psychotic. I might be out on Kylo. I just think (laughs) that— That's what it took. (laughs) There's a couple problems with what Kylo is doing here. One, keeping the ashes. That's weird. Don't do that. What are you, sweeping them up? Do you have a little dustbin in your fucking belt? He wants the trophies, man. And then two, fine, you're going to do that. Can we— Put it like in a glass jar no, with a just lid. Like spraying it's like everywhere. open. Yeah, it's like open to Disgusting. the air. Like every time the vents come on, the fucking ashes are just flying around. Imagine being an asthmatic in Kylo's chambers. Yeah. You fucking put your helmet down, and then the fucking ashes fly up. Also, why are they in the interrogation room? <laughs> you want the ashes in your private space in your fucking bedroom? Fine, but why are they here?
0: <laughs> These are all good questions.
1: <laughs> like- <laughs> oh God. Silo's a collector too, evidently. One bit of Abrams' fun that didn't appear in the final cut might have been far more divisive. In that Vanity Fair feature, the reporter observed him telling his crew as they surveyed a shot of Jakku, quote, I have a thought about putting Jar Jar Binks' bones in the (laughs) desert there, and everyone laughed. But Abrams, the reporter wrote, insisted, I'm serious, only three people will notice. I think you're missing a few zeros and commas (laughs) behind the three. (laughs) Only three people will notice, but they'll love it. You know who... Would have legitimately hated it. I'll give you one guess on who would actually have hated this: George Lucas. Yeah, I mean that's it's also mean. Don't His do favorite that. character still Jar Jar Binks. We talked about this in our Jar Jar character. I just, study. Yeah, I just think it's what a, little, a thing to say. Come on, the guy created the thing. You don't have to take a, this kind of shot at him. Very tough,
0: <laughs> Jason. Yes. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Okay, women always figure out the truth.
1: So true. Always! It's weird that a plot point in this was like Finn lying to the girl he's trying to date. <laughs> so Very weird. relatable. And that he convinced BB-8 to help him. BB, I'm trying to smash here. Can you just like... <laughs> awful. <laughs> the the
0: pieces? Awful. But BB's a great wingman, just like he's a great yeah. everything else. Yeah. They also always figure out how to win. In every yeah. episode, we're going to honor the character who rally the troops, advance the cause. And today, the winner of the Medal of Bravery is, of course... Ray. First of all, give me those Adidas Ray NMDs. Is that not the first of all? Is that the second of all? uh,
1: Let me just say right now, (laughs) anyone out there absolutely love the NMDs. That's it. First, we have to pay Ray the highest compliment we can give anyone. She earned BB-8's love and loyalty immediately, freeing him from the clutches of Tito. Who just hates everyone, apparently, and is just like a poisonous presence on Jakku. Terrible. What else do you really need to know? Nothing. I'm sad once I know that. But, if you need more convincing.
0: Beyond that, Rey uh, became next-gen Luke Skywalker, answered the call to adventure, the call of the Force, started to learn to tap into that great power. She is strong with the Force, as we hear from Kylo, who is not exactly easy to impress. She's even chosen by Anakin and Luke's former lightsaber in a way that would make Mr. Ollivander proud.
1: Mm. Her showdowns with Kylo instantly established this relationship as a Star Wars gem. The stakes of their connection and the force of their chemistry, the force of their chemistry, lighting up the movie, whether you ship them or think they're siblings or both. I mean, you know, we've had it both ways in this series. Why not do it again? Proud tradition. Or anything else.
0: At film's in. Ray, of course, still has a lot of questions about who she is, why and how these things are happening to her, but amid that doubt, she displays really remarkable bravery and determination. She throws herself fully, wholly into a battle that just days prior felt like it had absolutely nothing to do with her.
1: She bonds with Han and Finn and Leia and basically everyone else, and her courage resonated with someone else who the audience raised role as a female protagonist in a primary Star Wars film, means a great deal to a great many, and we should raise our glasses in appreciation and celebration
0: to Rey. To Rey, the Jedi who lived. Well, friends, no matter how much we fought, we've always hated watching you leave. Same goes for Isaac Lee and Zach Ram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder. Continue to explore the galaxy. You'll join us again next time for our deep dive to Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Till then, remember, the belonging you seek is not behind you; it is ahead.
1: Hey, I need you to tell Ray that we went to the Mitzi concert together. I know, but just, can you do it, freeze? Thank you. Also, tell her that I read The Goldfinch. I didn't actually finish, but I just need you to tell her that I finished it. How did it end? Quickly? Okay, here she comes.